You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Albania below us. It is right there that one of the most dastardly men of modern times is holed up. Where? We don't know. Well, no doubt you've been reading about all the important world figures who in the last few weeks have mysteriously disappeared. The enemy has grabbed Georgie Jessel, Dorothy Lamour, the one and only Colonel Sanders, and if you bozos want to believe it, Johnny Weishmuller. We got to get somebody into Albania. We gotta bust them all loose. Form a pop musical group and get invited to Albania. A pop group playing Albania? My dear adult, it can't fail. National boundaries cannot separate teeny freaks. Four lucky stiffs are about to get the greatest honor any American can receive. To volunteer to be a spy. Well, what's the verdict? I've never seen anything so ridiculous. Unbelievable. Freaked out. Cuckoo. You're sensational. You are not too thrilled about. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Terry Frost. Hi, how you doing, Mike? Um, yeah, it's springtime here, so I'm quite happy. Also back in the booth is Mr. Mike Sullivan. It's been a great week, guys. I've got the feeling too good today, Blues. On this episode of The Projection Booth, we are talking about the 1970 film from Lee H. Katzen, The Finks. That's P-H-Y-N-X. It's the story of espionage, intrigue, rock and roll, and the generational divide. It's the story of a fake rock band who are sent on the road to infiltrate Albania, whose evil government has been kidnapping America's Z-list celebrities. Z-list as far as 1970, that is. We'll talk about them as well as other youth culture films as we go along. Terry, when was the first time you saw The Finks, and what did you think? I saw it when I bought the DVD in about 2012, and I thought, there's a lot of old celebrities in this movie. And I kind of liked it. I, I liked the Libra and Stoller thing. I think that uh, the editing steps on the jokes in some cases, uh, but apart from that, I, I kind of like it. I, I like weird movies that don't succeed. And how about you, Mike? I found out about it. I, I think it was a combination of uh, Weldon's uh, Psychotronic and uh, I think Pachalski's uh, Shock Cinema. It really was like touching all the uh, the nerves with me in that it was, you know, it was a it was a parody movie. It was a, a spy film. Uh, it sort of reveled in like washed up celebrities and then current celebrities. It was like a with it. A movie made by people that were just very well middle-aged at the time and didn't quite get the youth culture i mean it's it like 
pretty much embodied everything I liked about movies. I've, I've seen it several times since I've got the, the bootleg video search of Miami. One of the first videos I got from them when you had to pay the $25 entrance fee to get in there to buy $25 movies. I got the Warner DVD, the Warner Archive DVD, and I, I, I would buy a soundtrack if I could, but that's, I mean, they released tomorrow on CD. They, they can never release the Finks, you know, like I, I'm still surprised it's never, it never came out in any format whatsoever. Yeah. It's really weird because you see so many of their albums in the movie. You'd oh, think yeah. they release one of them. And there are some nice songs in there. There's that little jingle about flying when they get traveled by airplane. And that's kind of cool. And it's very much early 1970s pop kind of jingly music. I kind of like that stuff as well. Dumb Harry Nilsson. That's what it felt like to me. <laughs> Mixed with uh, Spanky and Our Gang. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very <laughs> sunshine popish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's one in here called They Say That You're Mad, which I think is a really good song personally and i would love to have a single of it uh, unfortunately they kind of talk over it a little bit in the movie so there's not a good clean copy for it they say that you're mad they say you hear voices well that's not so They say that you're mad, and my heart rejoices in your feathers and your bells, your beads of gold and painted shell. The songs were written by Lieber and Stoller. There's an article out there, like the lost and only film soundtrack by Lieber and Stoller. And it's like, yeah, where is this stuff? And we'll talk about it as we go along. But a lot of these songs were covered by other artists because they're Lieber and Stoller songs and they're out there. And so you can find some of the songs, but not necessarily by the Finks. Yeah. And they had that problem of never releasing a first album, let alone a second one. They kind of had a problem of even releasing this film from what Bob Booker says. So we'll definitely hear from uh, one of the co-writers and producers of the film later on as he uh, tells that story. Yeah, this is such a shock cinema movie. I think I did first read about this in shock cinema because Puchowski, he loves that same weird generational divide when Movie studios were trying to cash in on youth culture, but had no fucking idea how to do it. Well, what's the timeline on this? Because I know this never got an, maybe I'm wrong about this. It never got an official release in the U.S. That's what I think. Okay, this was shelved, right? It was when when was this complete? Like maybe it was made in '68, but was only really released overseas in '70. The, the, the copyright notice says '69, and it was 60. released in. So uh, it may have been held back about a year. I mean, this is the kind of movie that Saturday matinees were made of when I was a kid. We'd go to Saturday matinees so my father could go to the pub and you get a couple of movies. You get a Matt Hill movie maybe or an Elvis movie and something like The Fink. So there's very much that kind of big picture kind of movie that uh, I don't know whether it got a release here in Australia, but I think it would have done better than expected had it done so. It's funny that this was made like in 69 and then 
I released somewhere in 70 because by 69, a lot of its reference points were just either fading or dead. Like it was, it was ripping off the monkeys, which was fading at the time. It was stealing laugh insensibility, which again was fading. It was making fun of spy. It was, it's a spy parody. And at that point, spy parodies were basically dead. Was this written in like maybe 64? Cause I mean, they they rip in the Madison Avenue at one point, Mm. which by, 65 was extremely dated. So yeah, it's, it's I think yeah. it's the 64, 65 movie made five years late. No wonder Warner Brothers just kind of like hedged their bets with this because just it was just it was dated by the time it was released somewhere. It's not like they were worried about quality a lot of times. I mean, I can't remember who released the Maltese Bippy, but I mean, that's right there with this. That was in 1969, uh, and I think it was MGM film. That is bottom of the barrel comedy. And this would be a perfect double feature, I think, with the Maltese Bippy. It would. And Mike yeah. And was yeah. the Maltese Bippy. Yeah, that's right. So right there with that laughing sensibility that you're talking about and just stuffing it full of a lot of stars as well. And I think Fritz Feld is also in that one, uh, as well as this one. Fritz Feld, who is one of our many celebrities that we have that were stolen by the government of Albania. And I think Albania is supposed to be a laugh line when we get to it because I, I don't know. Albania, I guess, is funny because it's a small country. I guess it's kind of like Kazakhstan today. Wow, wow, is very nice. I can tell you that Fritz Weaver was, in fact, in the Maltese Bippy because I have the one sheet hanging in my bedroom and I'm looking at it right now. I picked up some uh, lobby cards about three months ago, and there are two lobby cards from the Maltese Bippy and the Bachelor of Bottom. Ended up with like 225 lobby cards for 60 bucks. And wow. the Maltese Bippy. Uh, I did a YouTube video about it. It's really interesting what kind of washes up on our shores here in Australia. And the Maltese Bippy did, and probably the Finks did as well. I oh, will check that later. They're definitely the kind of American movies that you guys just threw at us like rubbish during the 1960s. <laughs> and really, the star of this film is not the Finks. The star of this film is Lou Antonio, who is the main spy, Corrigan, I think his name is. And he starts out the entire movie, and it starts with this whole series of jokes of him trying to break into Albania and continually getting ejected to Yugoslavia. I will admit, there were several times in this movie that I actually laughed out loud, and one of those was the signs that were for Yugoslavia, like Yugoslavia, no parking, you know, Yugoslavia always open, like all these kind of things. Lou Antonio, I like him a lot. Some people might recognize him. He was one of the half-black, half-white aliens that was in uh, Star Trek. You know, it was him and what? Uh, Frank uh, Gorshin was the other one. Yeah. And then he was one of many of the uh, convicts in Cool Hand Luke. I mean, he has been in a ton of stuff. If you look up his filmography, you'll be like, oh my God. But he, those are the, the two roles that immediately pop to mind because I think they were right around the same time. I also played David Naughton's father in uh, Making It, that sitcom Making It. Yeah, I think in this one, though, I don't think it's his best work because I think he's a bit low-key. It's like you need to have an extra level of kind of crazy or reaction in some scenes that he doesn't quite hit. In his autobiography, even admits to it, he's just like, why did they want a method actor for this? Just just doesn't make any sense. 
It's like trying to put uh, Marlon Brando in a comedy, and then you end up with the freshman. Oh, Frank Gorshin in Bells Are Ringing. <laughs> and we do have that great, this is a Warner Brothers release, so we get the Warner Brothers Animation Studio working on the opening credits. And I think, Mike, didn't you write a whole article about animated opening credits at one point? I did, and I didn't include the Finks because it. when I did the article, it was like uh, the, the cart animated openings would set you up for something wackier than what the film actually was. And in the Finks' case, it, it was actually less wacky than the actual movie. So I had I, I couldn't use it. Bob McKimson, I believe, directed that sequence. Uh, the noted Warner Brothers animated, uh, animation director, Robert McKimson, directed that whole uh, opening sequence. It looks a bit Pat Freeling in some ways. I'm not sure whether they had anything to do with it or not. They may have. I mean, that was like the dying. That's when they were doing, I think, Bunny and Claude and like Quick Brown Fox. And like the, the animation studio was basically on its last legs. Yeah. So Freeling may have had some involvement in that. Yeah. Were they involved? And I'm sorry if this is taking us off tr- topic at all. Were they involved in the um, Pink Panther animations? Yeah, Freeling was. Yeah. I, I'm not sure about McKimson, but Freeling definitely was involved in that. Yeah. We've got this whole opening with him trying to break into Albania, and he's being thwarted by a surly general over there. He comes back to, I guess, the U.S. I'm guessing that this meeting is in the U.S., and this is just – it doesn't sit well in 2020. I mean, I don't even know if it would have sat well in 1970, but all of these people that are gathered together like hookers – and priests and Black Panthers, uh, Klansmen, Boy Scouts, the Madison Avenue execs, and then there's like an Asian contingent. I guess maybe they're like the Red Chinese or something. And they're all trying to, they're all, I guess, spies. And they're all under the auspices of Michael Kellen, who goes by the name Bogey. And he dips in and out of a really bad Humphrey Bogart impersonation. Like, just every once in a while he does it. Mostly when he speaks to this feminized computer named Mother. And then he drops it almost as fast as he picks it up. Didn't Mother look like a prop from a William Klein movie? Like, that whole set. Yeah, there are moments of Mr. Freedom in this movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and I should say that Mother is an acronym for Miracle Oracle That Helps America, uh, which is now Fox News, I suppose. But yeah, there's actually two bits in that that uh, uh, meeting that I really like. When they reveal that uh, Colonel Sanders is kidnapped, they cut to like a Klansman who's like cringing. I thought that was kind of funny. And when they cut to like when they have all those like contingents of like groups and everything, they cut to Lou Antonio who's sitting alone, and there's a sign next to him that says Dumb Dumb Division. And, and we've got to say, too, that the whole secret headquarters of this organization is underneath the men's room of an IHOP. Yeah, because it's international, so you can get to it from any country in the world. Just, I just got that. Yeah, that would be, that's like the, the UN, I guess, yeah. I'm surprised they didn't just come out the Albanian IHOP, since it is international. And also, with the phone in the SSA is a big brass version of the Maltese Falcon, where you put wing off and use it as a telephone. So there's a little bit of a Humphrey Bogart gag there as well. So we've got Bogey, and then his boss is number one. I don't know if it's Rich Little actually in the costume. It's somebody in a costume wearing basically a box on his head, 
with a Nixon voice coming out of it. And in 1969, 1970, that was probably pretty funny. But again, it was just like, okay. I have to say, I like the design of the box, and I like the design of the character. Well, the whole point of that one is the guys are square. So there's a little bit of an extra cultural bit there for 1970 audiences. And so they go to Mother. They're trying to figure out how they're going to infiltrate Albania, and Mother comes up with the incredible idea of starting a rock band. So they're going to now have to go out and kidnap these guys, and they don't seem to mind very much that they're kidnapped. I guess the biggest thing that they mind is they're not getting laid. But they put together this band, and it's a very multicultural band. There's a a gentleman who I guess is Asian. He got a BA in Oriental Philosophy. Uh, He's also a professional protester, which apparently they had those all the way back then as well. A paid protester. Paid protester. A paid protester. (laughs) These days you have to go on Craigslist if you want to find that gig. There's a Native American whose father is very afraid that uh, the white man has turned him into a pansy. There's a black guy who is shooting a commercial for beer when we first meet him. And then there's a Michael Miller who is obsessed with bodybuilding and apparently meeting a woman in a hotel for sex, but he can't stop lifting weights. I was not sure what was going on there. I didn't understand. Like, there's a lot in this I don't quite get. Like, was that like a sex worker or something? The way it's like set up, because she comes in and says like, oh, so-and-so can't make it, but I I came instead. Or it could be a free love thing as well, because she's wearing a shirt that says Margaret Sanger lives And Margaret Sanger was a birth control activist in the early 20th century. Oh, that's right. I was trying to remember who Margaret Sanger was. That name was so familiar, I couldn't, yeah. And there was also a a bit just before they get the band together where Mike Kellen says, what we need is a gang of four, which is a reference to the Chinese Communist Party as well. So, you know, there's there's lots of little layers in there of contemporary politics, but they don't kind of push the joke as far as they need to in some cases. Like I said, there are moments in here that make me laugh. There aren't too many times where I groan aloud. I think the most groans I get are towards the end when we actually see the celebrities, when they're actually there. Because in that first meeting, it's like, here's all these celebrities that Albania has kidnapped. And then throughout the movie, we get other things. Like, there's some weird cutaways where it's like, We just found out Albania kidnapped this person, too. And then there's a moment when Rona Barrett is on TV, which, talk about a a throwback there, and she starts talking about other celebrities that have been kidnapped. So it's like throughout this entire movie, they're just like building, building, building to this incredible scene at the end where we're going to see all of these celebrities and talk about a letdown. It's just they're sort of like clunkily brought out and just introduced. And then nothing is re- – and then they're most of the time they're just sitting and appreciating the music of the Finks. And then yeah. at the end, they just have them in a radish cart and they just do like laugh-in one-liners. It's like the laziest cameos. It's not even where they just like – you know, usually in a movie like that, they, they like tap a cop on the shoulder like, could you direct me somewhere? And it turns around and it's – you know, like they don't yeah. even do that. They just br- bring him out and they just – here is this guy well, and his puppet. But- you know, to be fair, to be fair, they did have to get them back to the nursing home by six p.m. Well, they kind of do that in the scene where they're training them because they've got Clint Walker as their army trainer, though he's very obvious as far as like, "Hey, I'm Drill Sergeant Clint Walker," and then Odd Job is there as well, and then Richard Pryor, who just 
says, I'm Richard Pryor, and I'm here to teach you about soul. And then and he does not want to be there. Richard Pryor clearly <laughs> does not want to be in this. I don't know what. Obligation, yeah. Was he like friends with Bob Booker or something? Like, because it just seems like everything in his performance is like, I'm doing a favor. I'm doing a favor for you. I am here. You know, it was rough. Yeah, but the weird thing is they already had James Brown in the movie. Why didn't they just get him to do it? Yeah, that was strange. You know, I, I tag episodes with people that were in them, and I, it's so strange because I have talked about so many movies where Richard Pryor is in them, but I have yet to talk about a movie where he's like the star because he'll show up in like the Mac or, you know, the, the sleeping beauty movie. Um, I can't remember, right. Some call it loving and just like little, he'll just show up in little things and he's going to get tagged on this episode. He's not going to like it, but he'll get the tag. I think the training's pretty good. The training montage has got a few funny moments. I mean, they've actually got two of the dirty dozen to train these guys. The other one being Trini Lopez. That's something I, 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 that I love. I think what I like about this movie is the first hour because the first hour just moves so quickly and it's, it's, it's almost like a Russ Meyer film the way it's edited because like just scenes just jump into each other and there's like, it's a lot of montages and there's a lot of activity. And then once they become spies, it just drags, it just drags, it just, whatever momentum it has, it just, it's gone. I, I realized that because I, I watched it in two parts. I watched the first hour yesterday, and then I watched the last 20 minutes today, and I'm like, wow, this is like a different movie. The way they introduced the Finks, it's like, was there, did were, were they going to just sort of like usher these guys out prior to the movie? And there was like an introduction of these guys before the movie. Like they figured maybe they'd have a recording career, and then we jump into the movie because the way they, introduce these guys it's like hey these are your guys you love these guys right we don't really know who these are they're not really given a personality these guys aren't actors so they're just i I could see why they had lou antonio and mike kellen do all the heavy lifting and and just just drown these guys in like cameos from various celebrities because these guys couldn't carry a movie yeah, I mean, you can compare and contrast these guys to the monkeys. The monkeys, each one had their own comedy stick. They had their comedy personality. But these guys are all just kind of you know, generic black guy, generic First Nations guy, a couple of generic white guys, all of them dressed up in kind of laughable clothing, even for the time. And there's nothing behind the front wall. Yeah, yeah and they're all named their names. It's not like A. Michael Miller is playing – buddy the stick man or something like that and, and that they call them by their full names they call them by their real names and then at the end that they have that incredible like here's dennis larden they're getting more time than edgar bergen there's moments in here that i don't know if they're just cultural things from the time or not like i don't know why bogey feels the need to beat up mother at one point it's like what is the problem here? But then there are other ones that are easy, even in 2020 to get, like when they say we need to produce a record, get Phil baby. And like, as soon as they say Phil baby, I'm just like, Oh, Phil Spector. And I love Larry Hankin in that role. And he's just so wild. I mean, I love Larry Hankin and everything that he ever does. And he is just terrific in this. Phil Spector was still relevant, right? Oh, yeah. When was Get Back? That was, what, the 70, the year that was released? When when did Get Back come out? Because he produced it. Yeah, and then he was in Easy Rider in 69, I think. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just choices playing the Phil Spector character because half the time he sounds like Victor Bono <laughs> when he's doing it, and you think, okay, that coming out of a skinny guy is really funny. I smell greatness here, not only my own. I want you boys to set out on a path of truth. You are my apostles. Purge yourselves. We'll find the truth in the downbeat. And then, oh, well, are no ship of fools. Well. Uh, one slight problem. I want that ingrate's name, I want his number, and I want it now. This whole movie lives and dies by montage. I mean, you're talking about the way that it's cut, and there are so many scenes where it's just like, okay, now that the boys are done with training, which was a montage, which followed the montage of us kidnapping them, now here's the montage of this song is going to go to number one and be the best song in the entire world. It all comes out of just like Phil Baby looking at a headline and going, oh, what's your sign? Here you go. Now what's your sign is going to be the best song in the entire world. Are they suggesting that to make them stars, it was America was turned into sort of like a police state where there was like a, a mandate that you had to buy this record? Everything about like their popularity was sort of manufactured. And every time you'd see like a... Um, like a fan it was almost like a crisis actor and i re- the reason i asked this is because when they go to the sullivan show and they, they hold sullivan at gunpoint to get the finks on everyone in the audience is is uh, uh, like literally a spy in a trench coat when they start selling the record antonio goes in a record store store and just starts shooting a tommy gun that spells out the finks was there almost like a military coup to make the Finks popular, just to make them like, uh, just get them noticed and make them like other countries think they were big in the U.S. to sort of get I, I them to think, Albania? I think it was more a kind of payola scandal thing in a reference to the monkeys being manufactured. So it wasn't that deep, but um, that record shop scene is pretty good because I would go and buy everything in that record store because they had some really great albums there. And also outside it, they've got an enormous billboard with Elkie Summer selling carpets on it. There's also a, a Bob Booker album that's prominently featured, uh, like when Lou Antonio said, Beware of uh, Greeks Bearing Gifts. So I guess that was another one of his like first family type albums. So They actually get their faces printed on $3 bills. So like we have a whole scene in the Treasury where they're printing out the Fink's $3 bills. So it's like one guy... It's a face on each three dollar. It was I, I didn't even know how that was going to work. Plus, Nixon changes Thanksgiving to Thanksgiving. This is why I'm thinking it's almost like a North Korea type thing, where it was just like everything about their popularity was completely manufactured. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe maybe I'm overthinking it. This goes all the way to the top. Maybe Mother runs the country, and, and everything's being run by those punch cards coming out of its vagina. It's like Colossus the Forbin Project. Grassroots Colossus, yeah. The guys sneaking out of their compound during the the training scene and going out and like seeing that the world isn't the same place that it was when they went in. I didn't understand that scene whatsoever because like uh, Dennis Larden, that's the the nerdy guy. He goes out, and I c- I can never understand if this is another reason why I thought everything about it was manufactured because he goes out in public and I can't tell if people see through the mustache and reject him or they don't know it's him because he's wearing the mustache because there's people just pointing and laughing at him 
and like making like a mustache gesture that, as if to say, that's fake. We know who you are. I think they were throwing jokes at the wall to see what stuck. And they just kept throwing them and throwing them and getting anything that was rejected from a script for the monkeys and just throwing it against the wall. Am I overthinking this movie? Am I just like put, taking too much to heart with like? I don't think you are because there's. I mean, they have a song for each one of these scenes. There's also a song that goes with it, and this one, it starts this afternoon. I had a funny urge to roam, an urge to take a sentimental trip back home, to walk the streets and see the folks I used to know, a sentimental journey just to say hello. And yeah, it's this very maudlin scene, and he just doesn't connect with the world anymore. It's just so strange. And like I said, these songs were out there in that ether. You know, this is is Stoller and Lieber. And this song was covered by Jack Wilde, who is mostly known as being the artful Dodger from Oliver. And H.R. Puffin stuff. He was um, Jimmy and Puffin stuff, yeah. So, yeah, there were some weird crossovers with, like, these songs would show up in other places. And it's just like, oh, oh, all right. So, yeah, when I Googled the lyrics, because I couldn't find, you know, like, before we started recording, uh, Terry was saying that he was trying to Shazam these, and I was doing the exact same thing. So I started to just put in the lyrics, and then I would find, like, oh, here's this version of this song. Here's, you know, who who was it, Lulu doing a version? (laughs) Of one thing, and here's uh, Jack Wilde. Maybe they built the song, the scenes around the songs. They have the songs from Libra and Stoller, and they go, okay, well, we've got to build a scene around these songs. What's it going to be? So it could be um, just them kind of retrofitting uh, a plot point, the songs they already had as well. So there's that possibility. You talked about the Dirty Dozen earlier, and I think also this whole idea of Lou Antonio joining the band is kind of like how – Lee Marvin basically becomes part of the Dirty Dozen. You know, he goes from like the the sergeant into being part of their group, and the, uh, Lou Antonio does kind of the same thing. But I think it's more for him trying to get laid than it is for anything else. Yeah, I mean, what kind of guy can't get laid in 1970? Well, if you have that perm, that's probably a detriment. That was pretty bad. <laughs> Not a good look. Uh, it looked like a pencil eraser. He did not meet with Dick Clark's approval. I think there's a lot of scenes cut out of this movie because it it has this quality where it's like underdeveloped yet padded. I was on eBay earlier just trying to find some uh, like Fink's memorabilia, like maybe like a one sheet or something. And I, I came across a lobby card and there's a scene in the lobby card where it's the Finks are in like an army helmet and like uh white beaters and like boxers and they're being inspected by Pamela Austin, which is not in the movie. I see that exact thing right now. I'm looking at it right now. I did something similar, not trying to steal your thunder because I was reading someplace where it was like, Oh, I have, Hunts Hall's copy of the script, and people are just like, what the fuck? Where did you get this? And it was like, oh, there was a sale on eBay with all of this memorabilia, and it had, like, the Fink script, and Hunts Hall's name was on it. Like, this was his copy of it. Holy shit. I know, right? Wow. Oh, oh my god. I, I, I you can expect the day I known about that. Funny. Yeah, so I went out and I was just like, "Oh shit, I gotta, I gotta look on eBay and see what else is out there." And yeah, I see this scene that you're talking about of her and uh, inspecting these guys, and it's like, "Where is this at in the film?" 
And there's a scene, um, which I'm hoping we get to, in the orgy, where Mike Kellen's in a wheelchair, and it's never explained. Broken up, broken leg. There's also that moment in the orgy, which I saw you post about on Facebook, and I was just as confused as you, where I don't even know what actress it is that offers uh, Antonio a uh, a donut. And it's like, what the fuck is going on here? Everyone should just give their theories on this. Like, uh, I, I first of all, I, I guess we should say there's a scene in it where these guys are very horny and they escape. And because they escape, they get drafted into the army. But more celebrities get kidnapped, so they get kicked back into the secret uh, agency thing. And when they go back to the barracks, it's it's made up as an orgy. And that, and Mike Kellen says, uh, the U.S. government presents an orgy to you. And then there's like a, you know, a very chaste orgy. And throughout this scene, Lou Antonio, he's very excited, but no one's picking him. And then what happens is he's tapped on the shoulder and very deliberately, there's like a music cue. And then they shoot, they sort of like, pan over to this woman who's patsy kelly and you think it's like a reference to something but she just goes donut and he takes a donut and he, he crushes it and you don't know if it's like if this was a, a comment on an ad at the time or patsy kelly was known for handing out donuts what's your theories on this scene i've got two theories first off it could be a reference to the stage door canteen where they gave donuts to the soldiers Okay. So like a 1940s reference in a 1970 movie. The other one is that it's an alternative to um, a lady. Yeah, that, that was the first thing that went through my mind was to fuck a donut. The outfit that she's in belies what you're talking about with the stage door canteen. The, this whole, there's a little cross on the top and she's got these little like epaulets on this cape that she's wearing. She almost looks like she's a refugee from the Salvation Army. Who also gave out donuts. Yeah. There you go. So it, and but what got me is like there's like a very deliberate music cue, and because it, it just it's framed like it's, it would be a commercial at the time, but I've never found any commercial that would be like specifically for like donuts or anything. So I'm I'm guessing maybe it's like sort of a combination of what the, the two things you, you guys said, where it's like fucking donut, and these ladies gave out donuts. You know, I guess that's what it is. You know. It's a weird. It's a weird scene, anyway. It's just a, a weird scene, particularly the orgy, because those guys did not nail all those girls. There's no way particularly you can. <laughs> and there's a scene later on where they also have to do another sexual marathon, and you think, no way, poor guys are going to go over a thousand women. Yeah, it, it, unless they've got some really powerful drugs, it's just not going to happen. Well, it all depends on how much vitamin E I can get my hands on. Remind me of that Snoo Snoo episode of Futurama. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, where they uh, like fry and bender and they get almost fucked to death by Amazons. I can't say I've watched that much Futurama. I'm going to have to watch that episode now. I mean, the women almost look like they're dead afterwards. That Antonio has to take them out of the place with a forklift. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Oh, God, it's almost like. was totally over the top. You needed a wheelbarrow. And then we get Martha Ray, who shows up at one point, whose name is Foxy, and she gets murdered by Bogey because she knocks the secret knock too slowly. And she shows up basically to waste about a half an hour of time uh, in this movie, because for whatever reason, 
she has three daughters that all have maps tattooed on their bellies. And so now we have to find this map. And is the map just a map of Albania? I never understood what the map was for. I think it was, but um, one thing about it is Martha Ray is the most valuable person in this movie. She knows what kind of movie it is, and she commits to the silliness in that short scene. Uh, I've got to give her prop, and she's a lot of fun in that bit. And I think, yeah, I, I remember her from Hell's a Pop, and she knows what kind of movie this is. Well, yeah, and you've got the three strongest actors in there. You've got her, you've got Kellen, you've got Antonio, and they're all you know, doing their thing and, and Kellen's got the um the the deer stalker and the big pipe and everything. They're just it's completely ridiculous. But yeah, they just go for it in that moment. And it's like, okay, great. But then like I said, it leads to this weird thing that uh Mike you were just talking about where it's like, okay, now we have to fuck all these women and in order to find the women that have these tattoos I will admit that the third sequence was probably my favorite because they've gone through all of this sexual marathon type stuff. And then they finally, uh, number one, AKA Richard Nixon shows up again and he's got these super secret x-ray specs that he can give to people where it can look through your clothes, but it leaves people in their underwear. And that leads to a lot of hilarity in yet another montage. I may be remembering this wrong, but I, I, I think, Weldon said in his review that there was an Adam Film World article where apparently, I guess there was a version of this where there's full nudity. It was like, I guess it was in an, an article in Adam Film World. And I guess when this movie was going to come out at some point, they're like, oh, here's some scenes from the Finks, which leads me to believe there was a, there was a lot of maybe there was some reshoots with this. There was a lot of editing done. I feel like there's a very interesting secret history of this movie that we're never going to hear, you know, yeah. which is unfortunate. And the fact that they actually went to Rome to shoot some of the scenes for this silly little kind of side issue of the movie where they have the guys walking past the Colosseum and, and past the Trevi Fountain and all that kind of thing. The fact that they actually sent the crew to Rome is a bit of a surprise to me because it didn't seem like the movie really justified travel in that sense. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing, too. It, it, it was funny that it just wasn't on a back lot. I was shocked by the location shooting, too. But, yeah, the, the locations look lovely. I'll give them that. Hey, folks, I don't like to break into episodes like this, but I'm going to anyway. While we were recording the episode, I was looking up this Adam Film Review magazine that is being discussed and ordered a copy of it just to see, found that there was an issue with the Finks mentioned in Adam Film Review, went ahead, ordered that, and now I'm talking to you after I've had a chance to look at this magazine. Mike was 100% right. There are photos in this, and they are skin photos. From what I can tell, it looks like everything here is being done during the search for the map scene. The scene that I said was a little bit superfluous, well, now I know why that scene existed. And there's also a couple shots here from the orgy scene that were not seen in the film. There's one shot of one of the musicians being undressed by a woman in a cheerleader outfit, and we saw the cheerleaders at that orgy scene. No toplessness in that photo, but definitely some in others where it looks like they're in the hotel rooms in uh, Rome or Copenhagen. Uh, looking for 
the mystery map women, also found out that Sally Struthers, yes, all in the family Sally Struthers, she was in the movie and had a small part that was actually built out a little bit more. She is not one of the topless girls, though, even though the Adam uh, Film Review does say that she is one of these women, and she is definitely not. Uh, having seen her in her youth in things like The Getaway, this is not Sally Struthers that is listed on this photo. And also you'll hear from Bob Booker that that is also not her. And then I found, we were talking about the pictures of Pamela Austin that were on eBay. I managed to find another photo of her there is a single photo of her in the same outfit that she's wearing. There's one photo where she's inspecting the Finks while they are in their uh, skivvies with army helmets on. There's another photo of her inspecting the guys. Lou Antonio's to the left. The guys are to the right. She's inspecting them, and they are dressed up like drum majors. I'm curious to know what all of that was about. So never let it be said that we don't try to uncover every rock that we possibly can in order to give you as much stuff as you possibly could ever want to or not want to know about the Finks. So they finally make it to Albania, and one of the jokes that actually worked for me, again, was where, what is he, a colonel, a general, the, the basically the guy who's really in charge of the place as opposed to the king of Albania, and he's got these microphones of, like, Communist Broadcast Service, National Bolshevik Channel, and I can't remember what the ABC one, but having all three of the channels there, that actually made me laugh pretty well. Also, the gag about sending them to their finest hotel, Comrade Hilton, that made me laugh, too. This whole thing of trying to sneak these guys into this other country where it's being run by this dictatorship, it kind of reminded me of the interview. Do you guys remember that film that was like steeped in controversy and then died because it was kind of a shitty movie? Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking about that today, and there there is a lot of similarities between the two. Yeah, it's it's funny how they just sort of intersect. Yeah, I think there were a few movies like that during the 60s. I can't recall what they are, but I think there were a few where – People were sent undercover to communist, comic communist dictatorships to do various things. Might have been a, a Morecambe and Wise movie where they did something similar. Oh yeah, there was a spy movie with Morecambe and Wise, wasn't there? It was like their their first movie, right? Or yeah, the Inside Man, wasn't it? Or no, uh, yeah, something like that. But uh, I, I like Morecambe and Wise anyway because I did go and see the statue of Eric Morecambe in Morecambe. But, uh, yeah, the British did that. It might have been um, something like Carry On Spying or one of those kind of level yeah. of English yeah. movies. They did a, a very similar thing slightly before this movie came out. So Yes, it's Morecambe and Wise in their very first film. Britain's favourite, funniest and most outrageous comedians. Morecambe and Wise as the intelligence men. Yes, it's murder. There's a dead man in my soup. Murderously funny, of course, as Morecambe and Wise turn the Secret Service into hilarious chaos. The general is played by Michael Ansara, who was married to Barbara Eden. And this movie has a toss-up between who has the worst toupee, Michael Ansara or Xavier Cougat. Because they're both pretty damn bad. Do we want to get into the big long list of um, celebrities uh, yet? Or not? Yeah. 
it's really weird that they have to like stop the entire movie and then they get Fritz Feld, the guy who's known basically for the one thing where he pops his, his mouth and he introduces this entire list of celebrities. But then you realize that there were celebrities in the audience that he didn't actually announce. So it's like, again, probably some cut scenes. I'm like, there's Butterfly McQueen. I didn't hear him introduce her. <laughs> Even before that, you've got the people who are actually the rulers of Albania, which is George Tobias and Joan Blondell. And they're kind of fun. Um, George Tobias is having fun in that one. Joan Blondell is as well. George Tobias gets to say things like hotsy totsy. <laughs> I kind of like that before they get the enormous flood of aged celebrities. You get these two, and they're playing off each other nicely. They're playing off Mike Killen nicely, and they're boys, and, and they just seem to kind of lift the movie during those scenes. Whatever became of that book series and radio series that big to sort of justify this sort of like roll call of like celebrities? You know, do you know what I'm talking about? There was uh, I can't remember the name of the, the author. There was a series of books called Whatever Became of that was like really popular around this time. It was basically just they would he would do like it was like two page interviews with people like Manton Moreland and uh, Leo, oddly enough, Leo Gorsi, who in the interview talks about how he just walks around Brooklyn with a gun, oh, you know, just like <laughs> hidden, hidden in his pocket. It was hugely popular. He had a radio show, Richard Lemparski. That's who did it. Richard Lemparski. And I'm thinking it was the popular because it was kind of cultish. So I'm thinking maybe it was a popularity of this that inspired the whole like, here's those old celebrities that you may have remembered. I, I don't know. I don't. I, it seems like maybe because I don't know why. Why have all these like celebrities in it otherwise? Well, they did the same thing in Wonton Ton, the dog that saved Hollywood. Yeah, where they where they got every celebrity that they could prop up right and put them <laughs> all into, into the one movie. Uh, and and this one may have been a, a progenitor to it. I think it's every person that the people who made the movie saw when they were a kid in the cinema. Uh, it's got that feel about it. I mean, they've got Hans Hawley, Gorsi, Andy Devine, Xavier Cougat, Ruby Keeler, Patsy Kelly, Dorothy Lamour, Guy Lombardo, Joe Lewis for some reason, Marilyn Maxwell, who was famous for having affairs with both Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope. Just a real and, – and Colonel Sanders. Johnny Weissmuller, you've got also the woman that played Jane, and then you've got the Lone Ranger Antonto in there. So it's just – it's like a Mad Magazine parody of a movie inside of the movie. It's weird, it's weird but it's kind of wonderful in its own messed up way as well. I still don't understand why they have been kidnapped. It doesn't feel like they actually were kidnapped, that it's like kind of an – it's almost like an old age home is the castle in Albania – and here's where they're being respected. So a weird thing, and, and it looks like they were comfortable there. They were they didn't seem to be in too much distress. I mean, if, if she got real, they had the Lone Ranger and Tonto there, so, you know. What ends up happening in the movie is that the Finks go ahead and they do a song for all these old-timers. And the song is this appeal to their patriotism. It's like one of the slowest songs that happens in the film. And it's just, it's a really rough sequence because it's cutting back and forth between them doing the song and then the old timers in the audience. And you just get these very long close-ups of all of these different celebs. 
And then they are like, oh, yeah, we want to go back to the United States, but how are we going to break through the wall and get out of here because of the colonel is uh, holding us hostage? So then they go out and they play probably the, the best-known song, at least for me in this whole thing, the How About a Hand for the Boys in the Band. For whatever reason, all these Albanians have guitars and there's no horn section, even though the song has a very prominent horn section. And apparently the power of rock and roll, much like Jesus Jones in the 1980s, the power of rock and roll breaks through the wall and they manage to escape and hide all the celebrities underneath radishes, which is the national flower of Albania. And they all get to have a little bit of a one-liner inside the cart, and that's where you see the oh yes, Andy Devine's there as well. Suddenly. Yeah, just suddenly. It wasn't introduced, you just suddenly in a radish cart. I guess like uh, Joan Blondell and uh, Fritz Weaver just wanted them there. You know, like, why not George Tobias? I'm sorry. Maybe he's like a big, like, fanboy, and he just brings these people here and he you know has them at gunpoint and have to recreate their famous movies or he's like i always wanted the lone ranger and tarzan the team up you know like has them like act out this terrible script he wrote maybe they could have like added you know like added maybe an interesting element to it but you're right they're just they just suddenly i guess they're just there they're there like it's an old age home the son of joan blondell and george tobias's characters yakov who's a 1940s hepcat Wearing right, a zoot I forgot suit. about him. He's there wearing a zoot suit and things like that. And they don't actually make much of that either. They don't play on that and use it to expand the comedy at all. They just put him there and have him do a couple of Hepcat lines and just stand on it for the rest of it. Yeah. I thought for sure he was going to want to join the band and he'd be a terrible musician or something, that there would be some sort of payoff. Kind of like the big bad wolf in the three little bops. Right. This movie reminded me, I guess, the the way you're describing it is um, uh, the Kingsman two when they when uh, they kidnap Elton John and make him perform for the bad guys there, and it's like that whole like I'm going to kidnap my favorite celebrity and have them do what I want them to do. Yeah, they. You think they would at least take advantage of that, do something with that idea, but they don't. It just sort of sits there. Well, that's the point I'm making. A lot of the jokes, uh, they cut them short and they don't let them run their natural length. And uh, that's one of the two pet peeves I've got with this movie. The other one is whoever was the focus puller should have been sacked on the first day because the focus pulling in parts of this movie is pretty piss poor. Are you sure that's not just because this hasn't had a proper 4K restoration? Definitely the focus pulling, yeah. <laughs> we can dream that someday this will have the proper respect. The Criterion Treatment. With the restored Pamela Austin scene. And the European version with the nudity, yeah. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a trio of interviews. First up, you're going to hear from writer-producer Bob Booker. After that, you're going to hear from star Lou Antonio. And after that, you'll hear from Phil Baby himself, Larry Hankin. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. 
it's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, it's like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment. With Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy drag punk rock i was so rebellious and precocious i guess the definition of gay to me is freedom women gave the show its life i feel like well it's also a bit of a hunk fest you guys are right, hot true. as hell you are too kind that was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago it's a no holds barred talk with iconic creators and performers it's not f- white people it's not i hate white pe- it's dear white people it's how you start a letter the whole climax of the show is a sex scene between malchior and venla and i remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way shape or form i'm always thinking about the audience make them feel and make them laugh and make them cry i mean that's as simple as it is for me i had been not wanting to be a part of the film it was clear in the edit that i had to you know really reshape it so the film really told me what it needed to be cinema is an empathy machine and and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in i get emotional just talking about it and the tea is definitely spilled david don't edit anything of this out (laughs) no no they don't want to hear all the charming stories they want to hear the ugly gory relationship that jim and i have (laughs) we're cutting that part out by the way and with guests like john cameron mitchell christine vachon laverne cox jonathan groff justin simeon jim fall miss coco peru rachel mason jeffrey schwarz H.P. Mendoza and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually hide behind me and I protect She them. is quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was up. like, wait, should we have had security the whole time? <laughs> I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us. 
Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to hear from Bob Booker. This is actually two interviews that were put together. Talked to Bob after we found that Adam Film World review and talked about the extra bits. So those will be included in this interview. I did want to ask how you got into the radio business and what that was like down in, uh, were you on the air in Jacksonville? Well, Jacksonville, when I was really a kid, I mean, I, I graduated high school when I was 16 and I went to work immediately and I happened to convince a radio station there that they should have a half hour live comedy show on every day. And I did one, which I wrote and I was, it was me. That, that was really playing around, you know, I was 16, it's a local station, but that did take me to Miami and a 50,000 watt job down there. So it was the biggest station it was. And I uh, had the afternoon show and a million stars because Miami in the fifth, late 50s and 60s had more nightclubs and stars than New York had or Vegas. I mean, in the season, every everybody. So, I mean, Sinatra uh, was king, but every you can't name a performer that wasn't there. It was the biggest nightclub place in the world. And they all came to my show, so. That's basically what I did. So I got a tremendous audience. Why comedy? What was your influence for that? Had you always been the cut-up-in-class clown? No, not really. Uh, I mean, I, I did all the shows and everything in school, but I wasn't the Red Skelton uh, clown. My mother and father loved show business and to go see it. Neither one of them were, were in it. Uh, in fact, they really, really thought that was not a way to make a living, you know. It's, it's like showgirls in those days were hookers, and the audience view was very different. And my mother and father would have killed me if they thought I was going into show business. And that's until the first newspaper article came out, right? That said, I had a good show. But I saw so many comics, and I would go to see them, and I just loved it. So I said, I can do that. And I always had the sense of humor to do it. Uh, so I did it. What was your early stuff like? Like the comedy of the of the day, I had a tremendous audience at one time. This is a terrible thing to say, tremendous audience. I, I entertained uh, at the hospitals of the military that had come back from World War II. Not that Bob Hope and I had the same joke, but we did. Uh, I would walk into... Uh, a room filled with men on beds, in wheelchairs, without legs, without arms, or whatever. And, you know, they would give you the big introduction, the music play on. And now here he is, Bob Booker. And as I walked out, and they, I, I would always say, please don't stand. There's no need to that, right? Those guys, what an audience. I mean, it, it, you never saw anything so welcoming. For, for any entertainer, you know, uh, I'd still love to do it again today. But I learned a lot from all of that. Uh, and I wrote the material or stole what I could steal, as every comic did. You know, everybody stole from, uh, from Annie Youngman or Burl or, you know, jokes and stuff. And then you wrote some of your own. There was no plan. I just did it. I didn't really have a plan. You just do it. I've never read that much about comics lives. I I know that if if you're funny, you're funny. I don't know how you 
how anybody learns it. In fact, I've, I've seen ads of people saying that they're, they can teach you how to be a comedian. Well, I don't think anybody can teach you. you I think you either are or you're not. You know, funny people do funny things. I worked at clubs, but well, radio was hot then, really, with comics. The, the greatest comics in early television all came out of radio. That's why television was so good in the, in the beginning. They would already polish the acts, you know. Burl and George Burns and Benny and all those guys had been on radio. Skelton, even. All of them with big hit shows. When radio came along, that meant I didn't have to do clubs anymore. That was good. I wasn't doing that great with them anyway. I mean, I wasn't playing the big ones. I, I played shows where it was me and four strippers. You know, joints and military and such. But uh, as soon as television came along, that was the break for everybody. So I went from radio in Miami to TV. I was working television in in Jacksonville till I got out of the, got out of there. My my life's ambition was to leave Jacksonville. But when the TV station opened there, by accident, uh, I got a job immediately because I was on radio and they called. They needed an announcer, so I I went over to a talent show with a with a comedy magic act, and they liked it so much they gave me a job permanently in the TV station. So it was the early days. It was it was fun because it was a challenge. How do you do a TV show? Well, we do a cooking show. Where do we go? Where are we going to get a stove? You know, I mean, you you can't believe how. I mean, we used to get a piece of plywood and staple uh, wallpaper on it. That was the news set. I'm talking 1949. So I started in television very, very young and got the chance to learn everything. I ran camera, boom mics, hosted the weather, did an after. Everybody did. Everybody in early television just kept at it, but they knew it all. Because you were, you made it up as you went along, so that was a lucky break. Then I did uh, two years in the army, which was not a lucky break. I did television for the army because they didn't have anybody with any television experience when I was in during the Korean thing. In fact, at the same time, I was the weatherman for the local station and the newsman for the other local station, the, the uh, sports guy. Did you just have to run across town in the afternoon, or? Yeah, but the uh, the Army allowed me to do it. They knew one thing. If I was on television and also worked in the public information office at the Army, I could get them all sorts of publicity on television. So that all worked out well. But none of that is fame work. I mean, nobody would remember that except locally they remember it. I moved to I moved to New York out of Miami because that was you know that was the way to go. Miami was a great city at that time, and I loved it. And they were very very good to me there. But I said if I just sit here the rest of my life, I'll be doing this in fifty years. I got to get to New York, so I quit really at the height of my career there. <laughs> height. Well, I was doing well anyway. I got to New York, and uh, I was starving to death for like a year. First year was bad. You know, I was writing jokes for Joan Rivers for five bucks a shot. 
but I had a partner. Well, not really a partner. It was a guy I met. With, uh, do you know who Pat McCormick was? Was he also an actor? Yes, a very tall right, Irish yeah. actor. Played drunks well too, and then Baby New Year. He was Carson. He was Johnny Carson's head writer for quite some time, and one of the few people that could handle. Carson had some drinking problems in those days, so Pat and uh, Johnny would go out every night. Funny, do so. Anyway, so in that crowd in New York that kind of hung around, all looking for work, all trying to write the next review, uh, I ran into this guy, Earl Dowd, and then he and I uh, were writing jokes for morning comedy shows. Bob and Ray, I don't know if you know who they were. They were big. And you could go in maybe and pick up 20 bucks, you know, in the morning. We did that sort of thing. And then Kennedy got elected. And having been a disc jockey, I was so familiar with the comedy records because there were so many then. And I knew all the guys. I knew Lenny Bruce and Bob Newhart and uh, Nicholson, all of them. Uh, so I said, uh, I think Kennedy would make a very funny album. And Earl and I said, uh, let's do it. And nobody had done it. And it was just obvious to us. You take this man who's the, who's really a movie star, uh, president and we put him in everyday situations, fish out of water. And, uh, you put him in a gasoline place, you know, buy him for the car. And ask, asking for green stamps. And it's funny. And it's the guy who did it, Vaughn Meter, the voice was just excellent. <laughs> it's just all a happy accident. I'm, I figure if I hadn't thought of it, somebody else would have. But, but I did. So life's a happy accident. I heard that album sold crazy amounts of copies back in the early 60s. It's one of the few things I kept on the wall. It uh, was Columbia Records. Every record uh, plant in America pressed that record, every single one. That's how fast it was selling. And we destroyed Christmas for the rest of the labels, but we sold seven and a half million in six and a half weeks. And it just had never been done. And what Columbia gave me says the fastest, largest selling album in the history of the record industry. What was important to me was that uh, Kennedy loved it, absolutely loved it. In fact, he bought a hundred copies of it to give his Christmas gifts. They tried to they tried to stop it. Pierre Salinger and some of the guys at the White House they thought that uh, the public would really think it was him. And somebody sent me just last week. This is crazy a uh, memo that was written uh, for Salinger to the president. It's on White House stationery. I don't know where the hell they got it out of some file that was said, uh, let's see if we can stop it. We've got to stop the album. I know they took a, took a shot at trying to stop it. The one who cut him off was Kennedy. Jack said no. He said, I like it. It makes me a human being. And that, uh, that was all they had to hear. Right? The nicest thing that he did for us 
was, uh, you know, you get into some of these, who knows about all politics and presidents and such, but to ask the, uh, at a press conference, to ask a question about a product, you must ask permission to ask the president, which makes sense, or they would be saying, how do you like that new Ford automobile, you know, because it's an endorsement. So they asked him if he would speak about the album, and he said he would. And that's the, really the, the best thing that ever happened to the album. We'd already sold a couple of million at the time, but when he said that he would answer the answer a question about it, and the uh, guy, a press guy down there called me and said, Bob, don't miss the 7 o'clock news tonight. We're talking about it. It was very sweet of him, very sweet of him to do it. It was a big, big seller, and then the, the tragedy, uh, I mean, it just destroyed me personally. I love, I love the man. I loved what he represented for this country. I thought, I thought uh, we really had a new nation you know, because of him. Now we'll never really know, but the day he died, I had every album that was still not so. I had them all destroyed. I just, I was not going to cash in on that memorial thing because I knew the album would be a thing that everybody then would want to own. I said, I can't do that. I cannot make money from Jack Kennedy's uh, death. Can't do it. Anyway, it was fine. I mean, it's the way it should have been. You said you were friends with Lenny Bruce. Is it true? Were you around when Bruce made the famous line about Vaughn Meter and his career going down the toilet? I drove him to the theater. It's funny. It was a terrible time in New York. Two, he was there two weeks after Kennedy died. And I mean, nothing was happening in New York. Shows had shut down. You know, there was just a cloud over Manhattan. And a lot of the press, who they weren't that happy with Lenny anyway because he hated them. He, he must have been the first Trump, right? <laughs> he hated the press. Date set, and he hadn't been there in a long time, and it was a sellout. I mean, you couldn't buy a ticket to that show that night. It was in an old low state theater down on the down on the east side of New York. And Lenny uh, Lenny came to town. We were very good friends. We were working on a piece for a film that I was about to do. So, and, but I'd known him a long time, and we were going over to Paul Krasner's after the show, who was with the Village Voice. I dropped him off the theater, and then I had uh, two tickets to it, and got the car parked. No, no, we were in a car, we were in a cab, and uh, he saw the show. To see him live was just magic. But when Lenny came on stage, he always had notes, he had a lot of notes, you know, those little tabs you stick in your pocket, and so, and he did, he never walked straight to the microphone. He would, uh, you know, bow and take the applause. The longer he didn't talk, the more they applauded, you know. And he would walk around and he would check in the pocket, look at the note and everything. And then finally, he wa- you could see he was going straight for the microphone. And he walked center stage and just grabbed it off the stand. And he said, boy, did Vaughn Meter get fucked. And I'm telling you, I have never in my life heard such a laugh. Because, I mean, the press killed him for it, you know, killed him. But 
That's what was inside everybody's thoughts. It was so typical of Bruce because Lenny had that ability to say out loud your most inner thought that you were too ashamed to ever say publicly. And boy, he could nail anybody with that. I saw him, and the first time I met him, it was on the radio show in Miami. He'd come there for his first time in Miami. And actually, I, I went almost every night to see him because I had him on the show immediately when he got in town. But I actually saw a man die of a heart attack in front of him in the club, collapse over on the table, dead, while they, they, they got the guys coming in with the gurney and everything, and he made a bit out of it. He made a piece out of it. It's one of the funniest things I ever saw in my life. But I can't repeat it to you because it, it's you, and you had to be there. You had to be there. But who would even to, to think of a thing like that? But he was really working always off the top of his head. He was great. Brilliant man. Brilliant. Who who was it that said uh, Lenny Bruce was... No, uh, Lenny Bruce died from an overdose of police. I forget who said it. Because they constantly misquoted, but that it was word for word. And it's funny, having driven down there with him, and of course he knew, he knew the album and everything. We talked a million times about things. But being with him, dropping him, he went back to the dressing room, came out about 10 minutes later, right? He never mentioned it to me. I, mean, I don't think he thought of it until he got right to the microphone. But that's the way he usually worked. He didn't have an opening. How did you and George Foster meet? When Dowd and I finished the uh, the script, we, we did a demo of it uh, for ourselves. We got the Vaughn and Naomi and all the people who we were eventually going to hire for the album. But this was all on, you know, promises. And there, everybody was not a work actor. And so we did a demo so that we would be able to sell it off of that. And Earl thought we should get a, a high-paid writer. And Foster was working for Barry Como at the time and would in uh, Goodman Ace. Earl knew him. And he said, let's get him to look down the material just to make sure. It's it's like you, they used to bring in Doc, uh, Doc uh, Simon, Neil Simon, to do that on shows and such. And uh, so we brought George in to look at it. Truthfully, nothing much changed, but it, it's good to hear from another writer that, uh, yeah, I like that, I like that, I like that. Earl and I were going to part because Earl just got lazy. So George, George and I became friends, and uh, I I got rid of Earl, and then George and I were getting all sorts of uh, offers of albums. And thank God we didn't make another political one. I didn't want to. No, I didn't want to do that. But what we did do is we took it on the road. We took the show with Vaughn and the cast on the show on the road, you know, one-nighters, concerts. Beginning in January, we opened the Carnegie Hall, which was only about 
Well, the album came out. It's funny that I remember this. Huh? Uh, November 13th, the album was released. And January 3rd, we were headed live in Carnegie Hall. And then uh, we went on the road. I was on the road all the time, and George came part of the time. We had a deal with Vaughn to do a second album, and George and I started writing the second album on the road, and we would put it in, you know, a piece a night, if we could, to see if the new pieces worked. So by the time we got to, to record it, we'd already tried it all out. We know it worked. You know, You know who did that years ago? The Marx Brothers, genius. They ran everything as a live vaudeville show. The guy who ran the studio then, I forget his name, died young. You'll remember it probably. Anyway, told him, let's try it out in theaters and let's work it and make sure it works. Because, you, you know, they didn't have the advantage doing a movie of having a live audience out there to try it on. Uh, so they did it. That's why their stuff was so good. We had that advantage in trying out stuff as we went along the road. So they gave us volume two, which we did do. Vaughn wanted out. He didn't want to do it anymore because he, he didn't want to just be known for Kennedy. You know? uh, I, I didn't have a great relationship with Vaughn, a personal relationship. I mean, business-wise, yeah, but you know, it's not like we went and had dinner uh, all the time or anything. Is that how the new first family, the uh, fu- futuristic fairy tale, is that how that album came about, or is this the? No, actually, I, that was my big gamble in life. I said Ronald Reagan is going to be president of the United States. Oh, how silly of you to think that! Yes, no, but when there was all the talk going of you know Ronnie's going to run. Everybody said, come on, he's an actor. And he he was governor then. And I said, no, this man is going to make it. And I want to have the album. The, show, the whole show business idea came off Reagan being president to me. I said, what a funny idea. So I said, let's not do Reagan. Let's do Cary Grant, who's the biggest movie star in the world at that time. So we made a show business government guessing at Reagan could easily make a show business government, but we're going to do it for him. So we did it before. And actually, that whole gamble was on Reagan, and he made it. And the album was released immediately. So everybody was ready for the for the joke, the show business government, right? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, no, it really had nothing to do with the other one. That's funny. I had never, I had never really thought about it. I just knew we didn't want to make another political album. Are either you or Mr. Foster? Are you Jewish? No, George was. Yeah, I, I get that all the time because everybody said, "How did you do the Jewish albums?" You know, <laughs> uh, George. George's uh, real name was uh, Feinerman. It, this is funny. We were we were partners quite some time. We did a lot of TV together too. I was going. To, he he told me one day. Said, you know, it's Foster's not my name. Well, I knew it wasn't. Uh, and he says, Fine. I was going to secretly go down and have my name changed to Feinerman. So then he was still stuck with the name. 
because it would have been Foster and Feinerman. <laughs> but I said, I'm not going to do that. I should have done it. But, you know, legally, uh, you have to do it legally to do it. The Jewish thing came out of the idea of we, we should do another album, and it should have nothing to do with politics. And we both uh, loved the stories. Uh, we, we were friends with... Uh, uh, Zero Mostel, Lou, Lou Jacoby, just one of the greatest comedy actors that ever ever lived. You, you didn't have to write a joke for Lou; just give him a line, he gets the laugh. He was he was brilliant, brilliant. This this is true, and enough has never been said about Jacoby. But Woody Allen told me uh, we were having lunch one day talking about one of the albums. And he said, uh, Bob, you know, every time I write a movie where I put the Jewish father in, I write it for Lou Jacoby. In other words, when I sit at the typewriter, I see Lou Jacoby. And that's the way I made it funny. And Lou never appeared but in one of the movies playing the part because he was always busy. But what he what he said it's Lou on the screen to me. Yeah, and Jacoby was just brilliant. That worked, and we did a couple. We did five of them, actually. Different, but five of them. It's great humor, and the whole idea was you don't have to be Jewish to uh, to love this, these stories. Put it together as a show just recently in the last couple of years. Opened in uh, L.A., Went to Miami, obviously, New York. No, not New York. Went to, I don't know, about a half a dozen cities. I got Jason Alexander to direct it. So uh, two producers had approached me on the coast to do it. And I, I didn't want to do it. I had, I'm just too close to it to do it. But I knew, I said, if you can get Jason to direct it, I knew that they could get him. Jason loved those albums. I know he'll do it. And Jason wanted to call it When You're in uh, Love, The Whole World is Jewish, which was the second album. Uh, it's it's played, uh, oh, I'd say probably about eight, ten cities. There's talk of it going to Australia till the virus came along and into England. But uh, Sullivan Sullivan kicked that one off. Ed loved that album, and we were on the charts the first week he called me. And when he put it on, the 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 goy, the goy of all goyim of the world, sitting there and endorsing a Jewish album, I swear to God, he sold a million copies for it one night. Yeah, sweet man, gave us a gold bagel. And it did sell. Every everybody said, "Well, sure, you'll sell in Miami." And it sold in Utah. It sold in Germany. About that, uh, every everywhere. And well, it's funny, and it's it's no no different than Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, Fiddler's brilliant. I have I wouldn't call it brilliant, but it's it's uh, it's Jewish humor for everyone to enjoy. In fact, we tried to get Zero. He was he was rehearsing Fiddler for the first time as we were rehearsing the Jewish album. 
because we had we had lunch with him. We wanted him badly for the, but he couldn't do it because the other one. So how did the Finks come about? How did you get involved with that? The whole idea that Foster and I were working on while we were doing all of, all of these things uh, was to be in the film business, right? Because that really is the is the ultimate place. Didn't really turn out to be. It's so strange. Anyway, we had offices in New York. And he kept going to the coast to build recognition. And of course, we, we could turn down most any job because in show business, if you have one success, they'll hire you for anything. Ridiculous way it works. But we had the press guys. Everybody was moving to the coast anyway. We had the best press guys there were. We got the best attorneys and such, and we had put together some ideas for films, right? And we had a couple, interest in a couple of them, but we went to L.A., and a guy named Jack Schwartzman was our attorney, best I ever met in my life. His son is an actor, the Schwartzman kid that's an actor now. Yeah, this is his father. He's, he's passed away. Jack was just the best. So uh, Warner Brothers had just been sold. Uh, Kenneth Hyman and his father, Seven Arts. Yeah, Seven Arts Pictures had just bought it. So we walked into our attorney's office, and this is true. Right? And uh, there was a, it was just a meeting. What do you got, guys? And we said, what if the Beatles were spies? And the whole thing was contrived by the British government so that they could get them into Russia. And that was our thought, except we wanted to do it, obviously, American. So the American government produces, they, they, they make four hits, four guys a hit. And there's people being kidnapped. And we didn't want to do Russia. We said, that's boring, done too much. Let's do Albania. And Albania is kidnapping the greatest stars to ever live in America so that our culture could not continue. But understand that Albania is about 40 years behind the times. So they'll be taking Georgie Jessel and the Lone Ranger and Tonto and all of these people that they think are our star. So, uh, we had that conversation shorter than we, you and I just had it. Okay. And, uh, he, he said, get me Kenny. And he gets Hyman on the phone. And he said, yeah, everything's great. How you doing? And he said, oh, by the way, I gotta tell you this. He said, Booker and Foster were in this morning and they've got a piece. He said, they're gonna lock it at Columbia tomorrow. But I'm telling you, the thing is so good. Oh, and they can get Lieber and Stoller to do the music, which was true. And he said that because Jerry and Mike, two of my closest friends. So anyway, he said they can get Lieber and Stoller to do the music. The only reason I'm telling you, Ken, is I don't want you to call me tomorrow and say, why the hell didn't you tell me about the Columbia deal? that they're going to make that deal. I said, I'm avoiding that call. Don't call me tomorrow and and hate me, right? And uh, Kenny called back about 20 minutes later and said, I'll make the deal with him. 
off that call, all of all of which didn't exist. But uh, that's the way Hollywood works. So I mean, I, we we then well, we thought the idea would work, right? And it was a matter of getting. Uh, I love the idea of the Lone Ranger and Tonto being there with uh, Joan Blondell and and Jessel and all those people. Joe Lewis, right? Who saw who saw Joe Lewis in a movie? <laughs> we thought it would work. Uh, so we went to Warner Brothers and shot it. Getting the stars was the biggest problem. Most of them were happy, happy, happy to come. A few we uh, actually uh, some of them, Mrs. Mrs. Jolson, Ruby Keeler. Ruby Keeler had retired for many years, and I actually talked her back into coming in out of retirement. And after she came t just to do the Finks, I think it was a three-day shoot, Tops, uh, she went back to Broadway. She got uh, that, that excited. Mickey Rooney went on. In fact, I, went to, I did a show with Mickey a couple of years later. We did bring a few people back. But it was it was that simple, and then the the downside of it is the day the picture is to be released, the studio is sold, and good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, oh, Ted, a guy named Ted Ashley, uh, who's an agent from New York, backed with some money. He bought the studio, and of course they shelved eight eight films. Uh, one of them was ours. We had one screening. They never released it. And uh, I tried to buy it back from them a couple of times. And they said that uh, uh, it wasn't pursued. You know, they will never sell anything that's out of somebody else's uh, regime. Because God forbid it should be a hit. You know, you know what I'm saying, right? Don't ever get stuck with the change of management of a entertainment company. You'll be dead. I've got two at Universal right now. I've been trying to pry out of there for years because they changed management and they got the distribution rights on them. They killed eight pictures. One of the directors, oh, I know his name too, big Western director, he sued them. Took him about five years and he got the damn thing away from them. Uh, one of the last really great cowboy films, like Ten Men or something. I forget it. I could look it up, but it doesn't matter. We we didn't want to go through the suing process because you can also lose, you know. And they can uh, release it in four theaters and say you got your release and kiss you off. Uh, I'm surprised. What fascinated me, I'm surprised they put it out. Well, I guess he came out on VHS, right? The music cost, when you release one of these, it gets very heavy. And that's why I figured they never released it beforehand. It got so so costly, they didn't think they'd make any money. But they must have released every picture they had. So I guess it didn't matter. I was really fascinated that they released it. After, it was it was very devastating that they at least, I'd at least love to have had it out there for a month and had the whole whole world tell me they hated it. Or laughed or whatever, you know, because it's still hanging and it hangs, hangs in the background. I didn't think it was a great film. Uh, well, I didn't like the interference we were getting from uh, the studio. 
I, I had Sutherland, Donald Sutherland, to play the lead. And he had just made one picture. He played the part of a gay music conductor. I don't remember the picture, but I'd seen him. And I said, boy, is he good. That man's going to be a big star. So I get Donald Sutherland to play the lead. And they said, that gay bastard. I mean, they even called him gay. I said, man, <laughs> well, Hollywood was, uh, was not the most pleasant place to work in those days. Anyway, uh, so we lost him because they didn't they didn't want this gay actor playing uh, any Sutherland. And I also lost the uh, director. In fact, Lou Antonio, who's in it as an actor, was a better director than than we had. The the guy who directed it, I forget. I, forget, uh, I think it was Lee Katzen that ended up doing that. No, Lee did a, Lee did a, a good, decent job. But he was basically a television director, and we wanted somebody else. But we didn't get any of that. So you sell out to get to get this, to get that. You know, you give me one, I'll give you one, and and on and on. So, and we lost a couple of actors. I had William uh, Powell ready to do it, and I loved Powell. He's such a great actor, but he was just too elderly. And uh, I I spent like three months with Hetty. Lamar on the phone trying to get her to come back to Hollywood. Some of, some of those fights were more interesting than in the film. <laughs> I think Hetty Lamar just was so lonely. She wanted to talk to somebody. I don't know, Bob, call me next week, maybe. But basically, it's I don't want to come back to that goddamn city any longer. I heard that from a lot of people. Yeah, We had a good time making it, so. It seems like you were very involved with the production. I mean, not only did you get story credit, but you were also producers on it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it was ours. I, I, I say this proudly because it was the most work was getting the, the people. I mean, I actually talked to Clayton Moore. Clayton was uh, in his 70s when I talked to him. Still, he had this great voice. And he, looked, he still looked like a million dollars, right? And he said... Bob, you know, I get a lot of offers to come back. I don't know why, because nobody knows what he looked like anyway. <laughs> but he said, I've decided that I am going to take the Great White Stallion and ride it into the sky in not too many years. And I mean, he was a very religious man, and he meant it. He meant it. He and the horse were going to pass away and into the sky. I found out quite by, well, I forget how I found it out, but the Lone Ranger was owned by a company, the the name, everything, big uh, advertising company. I went to them and I said, what do I do? I want to do the Lone Ranger. I can't get him. And they said, well, nobody knows this, but we'll tell you. For one year, we had a uh, contract dispute with Clayton. He wanted a lot of money. And we said, well, if you want that kind of money, we'll take you out and put somebody else in. And they hired a man named John Hart, a good actor, right, to play the Lone Ranger. This was on a weekly uh, uh, television series. And uh, he played the Lone Ranger for a year. And he said that you could get him because he was the Lone Ranger. And nobody will know the difference. 
I said, in the year, how many letters did you get? They said, not one. And then I was thrilled to get Jay Silverheels on the phone because he was still around. Jay was about 75 when he made the film. That's one of the best-looking men I ever saw in my life. A great, great American Indian. I mean, you know, natural, born, really great. Never could get a job because he was a tanto. I had I had a good time with those people, right? I was, I was thrilled. But it's it's a, you had to be there. I mean, Hans Hall and Leo Gorsi. All right. When I was a kid, I used to watch their films. I mean, when I was ten years old, and they were the Brooklyn Bowery Boys. They were you know, the Hank Cagney films and such. And when I hired them to come in and do this uh, thing. And uh, the limos pulled up, and one was in the, on the ground on the stage, and the other one came in. They saw one another. They had not been together in twenty years. They had not seen one another. I mean, it would tear your heart out. The, I mean, it was. We should have filmed the people coming together. I mean, Busby Berkeley, Jesus Christ. We asked him if we could use some of the golden dancers of his musicals and we got 10 of them some some of them flew their own private planes in because they married well very wealthy men they were all still beautiful and was they really touching really touching none of that's in the movie of course <laughs> but i loved it i loved it tell me a little bit about your leads about the guys that actually played the band how were they to work with a pleasure, but didn't really go anywhere. I think we were, we were too rushed. Were they a real? Because I, I know Lonnie Stevens is a real musician. Were the other guys real musicians as well? Yeah, they were. It was all faked anyway. I mean, it was all pre-recorded. Not uh, faked. Actually, Mike Stoller did the uh, score for it, and he and Jerry uh, did the, the songs. And Stoller's, I mean, one of the best musicians in the world. Jerry's gone now. You're talking about two of the men that was probably the closest friends I ever had. Uh, I talked to Mike a couple of weeks ago. The the music side of it, uh, I, I was not thrilled with it. I think we had, I think we had one one kind of semi-hit tune out of it. It was a go traveling thing. That as they boarded the plane to go to London is where the spot is. That song did have a single recording, I was told. 145, that's the semi-hit, and I can't remember the name of it, to tell you the truth. It wasn't a recording from the film. It was someone recorded one of the songs and had, and had a hit with it. Uh, there was there wasn't really a hit from it. We figured there would be with Jerry and Mike, but you never know, you know. They didn't write everything; wasn't a total hit, <laughs> including this movie. We did two versions of the film because at the in the in the search for the mad on the girls. In fact, one of the girls was a was a major uh, model. I think she was a porn model in those days. 
that we hired. Uh, it was a total coincidence. But we said when we release it in Europe, we can do the nudity. Couldn't do it in the United States. And I have never seen the uh, the nudist version of it uh, since uh, we left Warner Brothers. I did see a uh, rough cut of the second one. It was, it was exactly the same plot, except we had an opportunity to put a little nudity in it, and that was beginning to get popular overseas, so we did it. We figured, why not uh, do it? So we just double-shot double the scenes. That was pretty much it. And same same girls played uh, both parts in it. That's funny, and that's mostly what it is: is the is the girls with the map. It's funny. Um, what's her name uh, from All in the Family? Yeah, Sally Struthers was in it more when we shot it, and I think she was. Uh, I think she suffered some edit uh, problems. Actually, when we when we found her. She came in for an audition. I thought she was sensational and going to be a big star because I think that was the first movie she ever made. And uh, I remember enlarging the part uh, for her a bit because I thought the name value was going to work uh, someday. It really didn't didn't matter. I knew I knew she'd make it anyway. But uh, I don't think she's in it much in the in the final cut. One of the photos I sent you, it says, Cherubic Sally Ann Struthers plays a sexy groupie who hangs it all out and lays it on for the four guys of the Finks. Really? And it's her topless with one of the the guys from the Finks, and it looks like they're about to make out. It's not her, believe me. She did not do that. I would I would have never asked her to do that. My wife and I both knew her very well. In those days, since she was just a child, God, I would never do that. So I can't imagine that with this being shelved by Warner Brothers, that this did anything for your career. I don't think most people have ever heard of it. The advertising they did on it was unbelievable in the press in uh, in Hollywood. We had a two-page ad almost every single day as the next act was uh, two pages in Daily Variety. The next actor was hired. They were doing all the cameo parts. You know, they've got Joan Blondell. I mean, some of these names still would bring people in Hollywood at that time. It just disappeared. When it came out on VHS, I had no idea. I'd love to have the opportunity to recut it myself. But Warner Brothers, and I was going to buy it back from them uh, when we finished. And for for years, they used to tell me that they couldn't release it because the cost of music. I said, well, first, first of all, you own the damn music. It's the only time in the world that Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller ever gave up the publishing, ever, on music. And they did it for me as a favor because they're old friends. Jerry's gone now. But uh, they were bullshitting me on the music thing because they just didn't want to get into it. And then I guess when they released everything, they didn't give a damn about who got what, so they just put it out. I don't. I don't know if anybody got paid anything for it. Or not. I doubt it. I've never gotten a statement from. Of course not. It did get us started in what was going to be a very great film career. 
off this picture, we had a four-picture deal at Warner Brothers. We we had a deal to make a sequel to this, and uh, three other pictures that we were, had in development. We had deals on all of them. That shows you how good Hollywood is. I think the headline when we came in to do this was was Booker and Foster come with twenty five million in projects. And they were. The deals were worth twenty five million. We collected uh, enough money to do the fix. Because the company had been sold, you know. So immediately the contracts are no good. How did you get involved making a comedy album with Bruce Valanche? Bruce came in from Chicago. He was a uh, a critic for uh, Chicago Times, I think, newspaper. He was a movie television critic with a tremendous sense of humor. I met him. He was one of the funniest men I ever met in my life and uh, just hired him. In fact, he was at the, our house one Christmas playing Santa Claus for us, trying to grab every guy that walked by, right? But funny, funny man, dear man, sweetheart. I said, I hope I'm not ruining your social career, but you want to get off the phone maybe and write a joke? Uh, I said, I'm busy. I mean, I'm having dinner with, uh, you know. But I loved him. I love him. It's funny. I was thinking about him last night. I saw a picture of him. And we bumped into him about a year ago in New York at a theater. But I hired him for his very first TV show in uh, Hollywood. And he caught on like wildfire, particularly with the Academy people. Bruce is great at off the top of his head. When he was writing the Academy Awards, the head writer, he was backstage. He was given the, the comic the next joke to walk out with. You know, when he needed something. Bruce was brilliant at that. Really brilliant. And he had worked with uh, Bette Midler. He had written um, uh, Bette's act, uh, much of it at that time. He he could do a better better, uh, Bette Midler than she could. Or Sophie Tucker. I actually put him on a show with Sophie Tucker, guy who was head of uh, ABC at the time. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He had... He gave me this lousy show to do that he wanted. So I said, well, I have some fun. Um, so I made the host of the show, uh, Sophie Tucker. But it was Bruce in a suit. <laughs> Never got on the air. Shouldn't have been. It's terrible. It was so funny. He's, he's, he's really a fine man, a great man. One of the major, major figures, too, in the gay community of entertainment in uh, Hollywood. I give him a lot of credit for it, too. He's done, done a lot for the gay community. Well, kind of along those lines, I was curious, how did you get involved with the now infamous uh, Paul Lind Halloween special? That was a guy named Ray Katz, who was one of the major agents in uh, Hollywood. He was the uncle of oh, one of the major uh, producer figures. Anyway... Paul had a deal at ABC uh, to do four specials, and it was Halloween. They wanted to do a Halloween special, so Ray called and asked if we would produce it because they didn't have a producer. And uh, my partner and I wrote it, produced it, and got uh, Bruce and Ronnie, Ronnie Graham had written for Paul when Paul first appeared on Broadway, and oh, many years ago. 
in New Faces that made him a, uh, a star. And Ronnie Graham had written uh, that show in uh, New York. We put him back together again like 30 years later. Worked, worked. I loved that show. And uh, Bill LaCoyne was a very good friend of mine. And he owned Kiss. And I said, well, if that's not a Halloween act, I never saw one. And then uh, then they got so hot uh, quickly. That was fun. That was fun. It was a really decent thing. And uh, Paul was easy. Paul was easy to work with. Uh, he was always funny. Funny man. I appreciate your time. This was wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Let me... Let me know how I hear what uh, comes of it. I'm feeling too good today. I'm feeling the way I should. I'm feeling too good today. If I had my way, I would. I'm feeling too cheerful. Quick, slip me an earful of bad news. I got the feeling too good today, blues. I'm feeling too good today. Coming up, you're going to hear from Lou Antonio, and I started off by asking him what was his inspiration for sitting down and writing his autobiography, Cool Hand Lou. Well, I've been writing all my life. I was editor in my school papers and sports editor, and when I was 16, as you can tell from the book, I started working on salary for the biggest newspaper in Oklahoma City, in Oklahoma, and with a byline and a car. They even gave me, the Daily Oklahoma and Times even gave me a car. So I've, I've been writing all my life, and uh, I, and I don't know what prompted me to, to write about myself. I just don't. I don't remember. What was that process like, looking back at such a, a, a wonderful and varied career that you've had over the years? I don't think... I ever thought I had a wonderful career. <laughs> I guess some people have had wonderful careers. I think, gee, I had a wonderful career. I, I, it was always just hard work, you know, learning lines, studying. And we had one time, you know, studying with three different teachers simultaneously. Uh, Lee Strasberg, Lonnie Chapman, Kurt Conway. Just, just kept at it. But that's kind of the way I've been all my life anyway. Find out to get as good as you can. Like in acting, I, uh, or well, when I was a catcher, I would, I'd get there half hour early for practice because I I, I I wasn't satisfied with the with the speed of my running, and I would do dashes from home plate to center field, just me, no one else was there. So I always it was I guess just kind of self improvement and the excitement of of seeing myself get better in what I was doing. And anything I started, I tried to be as good as I could be. You did so much theater work and so much television work, especially when um, you know in the in those early days when you were in New York and you're doing uh, bouncing back between theater and, and television. Though I'm curious, you've made such a uh, a strong mark when it comes to directing. When did you first start to direct? Was it theater or was it television or where? Well, I know Lonnie Chapman uh, in Summer Stock. Fishkill, New York, there was um, a play which a name I forgot, but it was like a Southern Family or something like that. And he said, uh, Lonnie said, you want to direct it? And I said, well, yeah, okay. And it wasn't a tough play, and I had good actors in Summerstock in those days. So uh, 
I gave it a shot. I I liked it. It was able to help good actors be a little bit better sometimes. The scripts were set, so I I couldn't work with the writers much. Though I I worked with I worked with Lonnie some on his scripts and 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 stuff like that. Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience on America, America? That must have been so exciting to work with such a great cast and with Ilya Kazan at that time. Well, I never looked at anything as exciting because it was just you had to be good at what you were doing. And I knew Kazan from the actor's studio. So it wasn't exciting so much as going back to Greece, where my father was from, and, uh, and visit that. And with Kazan, it was my first international acting, if you will. Kazan was always wonderful to just sit with, because he always, I think I said in the, I never know what I said in the book, so he may hear me repeat it, but he was the kind of uh, director who liked to get to know uh, the actor, the writer, anything that he could learn that would help him with that person. He He just did unconsciously, that's the way he was. Say he would sit with four or five actors and just listen for about 10 minutes and in that 10 minutes, he knew just where each actor was coming from in their life. So that was one of the good things about made him such an incisive director. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work on Cool Hand Luke? Because that's I, probably one of the first places that I remember seeing you was in that. Well, it was uh, I didn't know the, uh, the director at all. He was an ex-teacher in, in college, uh, English literature, I think, something bizarre like that. And he didn't know much about directing actors. So we were more or less on our own, but with his encouragement, it was almost the other actors where you got your excitement from, not so much from any direction he gave. I got into a fuss with him before uh, one scene. As I'm getting ready to go into the scene, he says, Oh, Lou, uh, I want tears. And I exploded. No, the character, these, these prisoners would never express themselves in a, in a sissy fashion, which tears were to them. You know, you had to be a tough guy. But so you had people like that that you had to do uh, work, but I did most of my hard work myself. And uh, but it's just that any time a director who hadn't, hadn't identified my characters much with the script, that uh, I thought, well, he or she hasn't done their job. They should know this person wouldn't cry in front of other prisoners. You know, that made you a sissy to the other prisoners, and therefore susceptible to beatings and stuff. It's always good for a, a writer, actor, director, set designer to have really done their homework. More, they should know more about it than anybody does of what their of their assignment, as it were. Do you? ever write like a, a backstory as far as like how they came to be where they are or come up with that idea in your head of this is how Coco got to be here? I did not with Coco. By that time, I was pretty confident of uh, my uh, abilities and how I worked. My choices, Strasburg, Kurt Conway, Lonnie Chapman, and from myself, I was pretty confident when I chose something. If the director found something that he or she wanted that was different from me. But we had to talk about it because uh, I would have to make a lot of adjustments uh, in, in my character and so forth. It was fun work, though. The discovering more and more about my character and myself was always fun. 
that was part of the excitement. Discovery is always exciting in the arts. It seems like having so many young men all in one spot might lead to some shenanigans. We got along beautifully. The producers, at one point, because we were all on location, all male cast in Teeny Town. There's a motel where we lived, and it was the kind of motel that had a dance floor at night, so we'd, we'd sit there, as I told you. I realized the poor life movie stars had when Paul and I, after work one night, had a dance floor and three-piece band or whatever. Uh, Paul and I were having a, a scotch. This man and his wife came up and and the man said, and they were in their late 30s or 40s, I don't know what they were. So the guys came up to the table, yes, in which he came up with his kind of bashful wife and said, hi, Mr. Newman, just uh, this, uh, today is uh, my wife's 40th birthday. And uh, Paul said, well, I've been there. And he said, so for her present, I'm giving her you. And he pushed the woman to our table and ran away. And I looked at Paul and the music was playing. So I jumped up and started dancing with the woman so that uh, Paul could escape. So he he got out of the place. Was there much fraternizing between the group who was playing the convicts versus the group who were the bosses? Well, I think in one, in one aspect... Because I, I I thought about that when I saw uh, who he was casting when Rosenberg was casting the good guys meaning the bad guys were all of kind of New York actors kind of knew each other whereas the cops and the and the uh, guards they weren't the same as we were at all they were just a disparate sort of casting thing that people had and I, I used to think well maybe he did that on purpose Mr. Rosenberg I mean. Never found out yet. Never asked him. I think the other place that I probably saw you originally was in Star Trek, of course. How did you keep from touching your face and screwing up that makeup? Well, because uh, I had such respect for the makeup man. They get that line, and and sometimes when uh, when during makeup, he'd be putting it on, he'd start cursing because he'd, he'd, he'd made the line bad, and, and they the, the white came into the black and so forth. And I felt, felt so sorry for the guy that I was just very patient because that was a hard job. For a makeup man, that was a hard job. It, it, you know, you say, what, half white, half black? Oh, yeah. No, that line coming down, half splitting your face and your nose and everything had to be exact. And many of the time he would mumble a curse word and start all over. Was that the first time you had to wear that amount of makeup for a role? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I never wore makeup in, in the theater or in film. I'm trying to remember what the role was where you, I think you ended up getting cut, but you had uh, like a false nose and a hump and all of this. Uh, just It wasn't nearly as much makeup, but it seemed like it was more physical uh, deformity. Oh, yeah, that was a Frankenheimer film where I played it back. And it was written, and it was just, it was silly. At my age, humpback in a suit, scar on my face. It would take me an hour before I walked on a set in the morning with after makeup and all that stuff. And thank goodness they recognized that it was silly 
And uh, they just cut me pretty near out of the movie, as I recall. It was, yeah, dumb. So we are doing an episode about the Finks. Can you tell me more about what that was like for you, especially playing comedy, which I'm not sure if you had done comedy in movies yet at that point. I don't think I had. The producers were really taking a chance. They were taking me as a quote-unquote serious actor, putting him in a comedy. The director, who was uh, Lee Katzen, who was really known for cops and robbers shows and action shows and everything. So the producers were really taking a chance by putting us in things that, that we didn't didn't normally uh, do. And so so it was great fun doing because also the Finks were young guys that hardly had any experience at all in the showbiz. One of them, Lonnie, I think, I think Lonnie was, uh, had acted a little bit, but they, they had no skills to fall back on. And then we had those uh, wonderful guest actors. Uh, at one time, I think we had a 50 or 100 of them lined up. There's a big picture, you know, of the old timers, all the old timers, Joan Blondell. And so it was fun to hear Johnny Weissmiller. It was fun to just sit around them and listen to their stories. You acted a lot with um, Mike Cullen. How was that? Oh, I knew Mike from New York uh, as an actor. And uh, he, was a, he was a wonderful man. There's no BS in him at all. And I can remember once we were out in Hollywood at the Montecito Hotel where all the New Yorkers would stay. And it was there it was in the summertime, so the sun was out and beautiful. And Kellen had the kind of uh, wonderful side comedy in his, in his thinking. He would say, here's this bright, wonderful day. And he would say, I don't know. Oh, should we go for a picnic? Is it nice enough to have a picnic? <laughs> Which is only he made it funny, and we were just roar, just roar. And one time we were watching Ultraviolet, and we're in, in doing post uh, in post production, you know, re redoing a line or or some adding a dialogue, you know, stuff like that. We're in the in the room, and where the uh, engineers are, and. We were watching, and she had never been in that situation. And so we're in the uh, in the sound, and and on the on the sound, there's in those days, you would have like uh, six strips of uh, knobs, and push it up here for bass, or up this one up for uh, or something for vibrato, you know that kind of stuff. And we were we were back there, and. Uh, uh, the, she was standing next to me in, in the middle of me and Mike Kellen while we're watching through the window somebody getting recorded woman getting recorded with some dialogue and stuff and when Ultraviolet this is one of my favorite times she was a wonderful woman and you know Hedy Lamar beauty uh, accent and she was watching all this uh, while, while there were, a woman was re-recording something and she was between me and Mike Kellen, and we're looking down, and the guys, the sound technicians, going this way and that way, and putting a knob and doing this and doing that. And she said, out of nowhere, she just said quietly, look at those knobs. I want to suck every one of them. Well, Kellen and I 
we just we we were speechless. We couldn't think of a thing to say, <laughs> but, but boy, did we exchange looks. <laughs> I couldn't get over some of the get-ups they had you in, especially that just huge wig that you're wearing and those were those platform shoes. They just look so uncomfortable. I don't know if they were platform. I really don't. Uh, I still have the orange jacket in my garage, corduroy jacket. George Papard was a friend, and uh, we've been in class together and done scenes together. George wasn't particularly known for being a laugh a minute. He he started working with me at his house, finding a way to walk, finding a thing to do with my arms. And it was great fun working with him because he really knew the stuff. And that's how we came up with the walk, which somebody said was Groucho. And I said, never entered our mind. There was a touch of Groucho, I mean. And it was just fun. I found working with a fellow actor. I don't think it was ever released in America. I'm pretty sure it was not. I ran into a woman on the street and she said, oh, you're Lou Antonio? Oh, yeah. So enjoy the things. And I said, well, where did you see it? It was never been released. It had a preview and that was it. And she said, well, I saw it in Mexico. So they would play it in Mexico, but they wouldn't spend the money. Also, Warner Brothers had just sold out to some other company. So they were being very careful about the the new big bosses at Warner's were being very careful about what they would release as one of their first, first films. So And so they never released it in America. I know that film, there were so many luminaries in there. And I'm curious if you've ever been starstruck because you've worked with so many amazing people. No, but the appreciation of, say, working with Martha Ray, uh, whom I've seen forever, and and watching the fun that she got out of acting. And she was very brave. She would try anything. Leo Garcia, those guys were just out of hand. Off stage, they were still the Bowery boys. Hans Hall was a, a goofball, and I think a real goofball, but they, they were fun guys, had a lot of energy, didn't take it all too seriously. I was really glad to read in the book about your relationship with Dennis Weaver and just working with him on Gentle Ben and then working with him on McLeod. It just seemed so nice to hear how you guys worked together over the years. It's funny that one person in, in your life can make a, such a big difference and you think this person's not, it's not like George Cooker is going to direct me or anything. Lonnie I studied with and he was an Oklahoma boy and he was a, a, a track man at the university. And I had a cousin, Plato, who was at, uh, on the same track team as a shot putter, an All-American uh, tackle in football, Chicago Cardinals, he played for too. Dennis, we knew of each other because of uh, Plato, and Dennis told me his name, I think his real name was Bill. He was in the, doing plays at the, at the university, but they were on the same track team. Dennis was a, a country runner, and Plato was a shot putter. So the, the thing that Plato used to love is that Dennis would be warming up, you know, to do a long-distance run, and he'd be running up, and Plato would be pushing the shot put, and Dennis would be running by, loosening up. Plato used to just love to say, kick him in the ass, Barrymore. You directed so many TV movies, and the thing I think people forget about TV movies these days is just the short amount of time that you would have in order to put those things together. 
what was the typical turnaround time for a TV movie back in the late 70s, early 80s? We got four weeks to prep it and cast it and locations and rewrites and all that. Then we usually had about 13 to 18 days of shooting. So you really had to go fast. And you had to, uh, because the producers were nervous people, and they would uh, say now, because I, I like to shoot with two cameras a lot, and so you'd capt- capture uh, something fresh. They didn't use, so they would say, okay, how many days? You can have uh, you can have two cameras uh, four days. I, I said, why can't I have them every every day? Save you a lot. And they they had no imagination and didn't know really what we went through as directors and actors. And uh, so I would have to say, okay, I want, I want two cameras this day and this day and that day and hey, four days. That's all you only get a two. Well, now of course you have three cameras these days, but in those days. The producers didn't know much about filmmaking. Some of them were, were smart and had done a lot of work. And, and the, most of them, but see, they also, uh, television was expanding in those days. And that, not just the two-hour movie, but I remember I did one with uh, called The Star Maker, which was four hours long with Rock Hudson and some really nice people, good actors, good cameramen. And uh, mainly we just shot fast and had a lot of fun because we all knew what we were what we were doing it was always you, know, you always learn something work work uh trying to figure out the, tomorrow's work and you just got off of it about five hours ago and you got to go to sleep in two hours and so it, it was a 24-hour job being a television director for movies of the week and they always wanted a star i couldn't blame them the networks always wanted a star and, and the director didn't have anything to say about the star, and I understood that. They wanted people to watch it. But once we were on the set, and that, and that was just uh, something you you did. You, you, the director, fine. You're the assistant director, good. And always good at their job. So it there was hardly any entanglements at all. What was that like, bouncing back and forth between acting and directing? Because you did that for a lot of years. At one point, I thought a perfect year for me would be having four guest stars, being a guest star in four shows, and uh, four directing jobs. That was a perfect year to to direct a bunch and and then act in a bunch. I do have to ask you, too, about Dog and Cat and what that was like working with uh, Walter Hill on that. Oh, yeah. He was like, came up with the idea of a producer or something like that. Mainly it was the uh, the fun of Kim Basinger, who was just starting out and was uh, just so much fun to work with because she didn't know anything. Just had the startling looks and uh, a natural honesty and from the South somewhere. And then we would, Matt Clark was on it. He was an old timer, semi-regular on it. We were both detectives. I'm the old timer and she's uh, the new hotshot. And we're all of us, the detectives and everything, you know, we're at a desk and doing our work. And she comes by in a, like a satin evening gown because she's going out that night. And uh, so uh, her nipples hardened. And as she, as she walked, walked through, I threw in an ad lib. I said, is it cold in here? Or are you just happy to see me? And, and they loved it, but they, they were afraid to put it on. Online, but then a new guy took over NBC, a new young guy, and he put it in. 
because we didn't think it would ever get on. And I, I'm pretty sure, I think he got it in. What led to your retirement, finally? Oh, you don't retire. Somebody asked me that month, and I said, I'm not retired, I'm just out of work. I ran into, a, when I was out in Hollywood doing it in the summertime, I do guest shots so I could support my theater habit. And uh, there was an old timer, I can't remember his name, Bill something. But he, he, I'd seen him in movies ever since I can remember. And and he, he had my one of my favorite lines he, when he's doing something in the swamp. And he says, steps there and it's one of those things that you don't know is going to suck you down and drown you. And his line, his line was, don't let me die in Okie Pinocchio. My favorite line. And, and so I saw him. I, I, in the one summer, I was renting a, an apartment while I shot out here, and he was walking down the street. And I, I said hello and told him how much I appreciated his acting. And I said, "Did you have anything else coming out that I can watch?" He said, "Oh no, I retired." Now it never entered my mind that an actor would or could retire, and he seemed quite happy that he'd had a good life uh, professionally. I don't know about his personal life. But it just it's one of those things you never ask yourself once you start in a certain position. I mean, you know, a ball player will have to retire when that uh, that arm goes bad, and basketball players when the the knees are start to go. But you, you never think of it, an actor. I never thought of an actor retiring. So, what have you been up to lately? Are you still writing? Uh, writing. I teach and run the actor studio out here. I don't run it. Uh, I found a house for it, <laughs> but Salome uh, Jens and I are, are co-artistic directors of the Actors Studio. So uh, when this uh, awful epidemic, pandemic, I had to close it down out here because uh, we just had to, you know, that, that's the circumstance now. But I would still go in. We, we have auditions to get into the Actors Studio and do a five-minute scene, a preliminary and then if you pass the preliminary, then you have a final. And so so we'll, we line them up and maybe we'll take two or three people a year. Uh, and so that was that was fun. But now we even had to stop that. So I'm not teaching anymore. I have a family and that's plenty. That's the fun part of life anyway. Well, Mr. Antonio, thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you, and uh, I enjoyed your questions, knew what you were talking about, and I'm glad you read the book. Trip with me, trip with me, trip with me, trip with me. Get the Sunday travel section and take a trip, trip with me. Hey, any points the right direction, let's take a trip, trip with me. Let's go. Some place, any old place. Let's go. Some South Sea Island or frozen ways. Last but not least, you are going to hear from the one and only Larry Hankin. There is, by the way, a extra hour of this interview that is also going to be released around the same time. But in this portion, we talk specifically about the Finks, and then we kind of transition into talking about the Bill Hader show. Barry, enjoy. Yeah, wow, man, that's amazing. Nobody knows about the Finks. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, what, you know, ultraviolet. 
Yeah. Do you, do you know about that scene? Well, I mean, there's, there's no big deal. It's not a, a porno scene, but it was a so. And then the, the flying in on that. I, I wanted to fly in on that cross. That was not me. I don't know if you saw the movie or, or know about the cross, but I, I was a rock and roll actor in the movie, an actor playing the part of Jesus Christ. You know, I wasn't playing Jesus Christ because I was an actor in a play playing the part. But they wanted to make a big production out of it, out of, you know, so maybe a, a screen thing or something. I don't know. They were going to fly the, in the script. It said they fly the actor playing Jesus Christ onto the beach via helicopter hanging by a cross from the bottom of the helicopter. And they would fly me in over the ocean onto the beach and I would land and they would take me off the cross. And I thought, wow, that's cool. And I was really looking forward to it. I thought that's, the, oh, that's incredible. You know, just flying across the, so, but they had a, a stunt guy do it. And I was really brought down, but so they, they had uh, ultraviolet who was some queen of the New York scene at the time, sucked my toe. So I had to, you know, really clean my, my whole leg, you know, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't as porno uh, on the set as it was in the shot because there's a whole crew and people, you know, taking photographs of this event. Um, and she had to look great. And, you know, the makeup people were right there, you know, and they're getting the right light. And stuff. So it was like an event. I was totally detached from my leg, you know, watching this. What the hell? These people in L.A. are far out and they go for the shot. You know, I said, this is I wouldn't even have thought of this. If they said, OK, write some psychedelic rock scene. Uh, no, I wouldn't have thought of this. Maybe, maybe the Christ on a helicopter hanging from below a helicopter, maybe, but not. So, you know, so that's, but I thought nobody will ever see this. But yeah, they, they even, uh, I guess they released it. It's amazing. Yeah, I, but how I got there, that I would not know. I would not know. I tell you, I, even about wouldn't I know, okay, you know, I, I never practiced this. I, uh, okay, but there's a shot in a movie. It's called The Loose Shoes, I think is the name of it. It's a comedy movie. And I was in a barracks, and there was a tracking shot, you know. And it's a, it was a, a guys uh, who had just come back from battle. So we were all in some sort of bandages on beds, and there was a tracking shot along the, you know, the standard you know, army hospital shot. You know, start. So as we, and there was a close up on our faces or, or chest high, you know. And so they're going, and we said, okay, just, you know, when when you see the camera come, you know, either groan or moan or, you know, and then blah, blah, blah. So I thought, oh, it would be nice if I had a teacup on my head and I had a spoon in my hand and I was about bandaged uh, around, I think, I don't know what my bandages were, but my hand was free. And I think my head may, might have been bandaged because I could balance a teacup, you know, in a saucer, like like an uh, English teacup, which they had. It was laying around. I thought, well, what if it, they pass me by? There would be a teacup on my head. And that wouldn't be silly enough, but I had a little teaspoon that, that would fit the teacup, you know, like one of those small teaspoons, teaspoons. And I said, as the camera came by, it would be really cool if I could throw up the, uh, the spoon and it would land in the teacup. But even if I missed, it would be funny even then. So I thought, 
so I kind of practiced stuff on the side while I was setting up the shack, and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, you know, really, because I couldn't, you know, there's no mirror or anything. I was just sitting on the bed, just throwing it up and hoping it would land. So then, you know, the, the camera goes, uh, okay, is everybody ready? And the thing comes by, and I saw the camera, and I just threw it up, and I hear tink, and the camera moves by, and I did it, and it's on film, and it's in the movie. Now, you can ask me, how, how did that happen? I don't know, man. You know, the chances of that is amazing. That always stuck with me, you know, even because sometimes I'll rehearse something and it doesn't happen on screen or, or, or you rehearse it and yeah, you finally do, but you've realized, oh, I rehearsed it enough. So yeah, I can do it two times in a row, but I had to really work at it. Okay. But to just, you know, and, and that's kind of every once in a while, I say, how did I get here? I don't really know. There's a lot of, I mean, maybe you're being at the right point or, or something or a, a vibe, but it was not something that I was conscious of and was aiming for. That's, you know, uh, Elvis Costello, you know, my aim is true. Yeah, but do you know what you were aiming at? You know, it's, it's uh, you know, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta get to the top of your mountain and you think, well, that's the process, right? No, my process of finding my mountain, once I found the mountain, that was cool. I was fine. You know, and it, the, I accept that, but it took me until my late years till I finally found, oh, that's what I really would like to do. Oh, I get it. Cause people, you know, like you say, acting, you ask me a question about it. I find, yeah, I like being an actor, but I have, I've had three agents in my career because they weren't going in where I thought I, I wanted. But w- one of the agents was saying, you know, you really should be an actor. And I said, no, I like being on these sitcoms. I like, I, I, you know, I like being funny. And they go, yeah, but, and they would send me up to these really serious roles. And I wouldn't, you know, I would go up and I would either get them or not. I mean, there was no random, you know, well, well, I was right for it. I don't know why I watched it. If I didn't get it and they go, why did they hire that person and not me? So I could never figure it out. It's totally random. But everyone, one time, one time I got a role and I dug it. It was a serious role and, and I got it not trying too hard. Cause by then I'm, you know, this is too random for me to actually aim for it. It has nothing to do with my aim. It's, you walk in the door, you got it, or you don't. That that was my thinking. So I just walked in the door, and I got it. And when I did it, the, the part, the role, I enjoyed it. It was really cool, and it put me in a headspace that I'd never gone to before. You know, I, I was doing things that I wasn't conscious of, even though I thought, oh, wow, I would never have chosen to uh, have my lip quiver at this moment, but my lip is quivering. I'm emotionally involved in this scene. Wow, cool. Well, that's what acting is about. You know, so I, there was something there that I could explore, which interested me. Oh, different kinds of ways of looking at different, and then breaking down apart and stuff. I thought, oh, so then, yeah, then I wanted to become an actor, but by then I had become one by this agent just sending me or, or somebody, you know, calling me about a part that I suddenly, oh, this is what they're talking about. But by then, you know, my hair had turned gray by, by the time I actually found what my agent was talking about when my hair was black. 
No, you should be an actor. No, I shouldn't be an actor. I, I like doing this. Oh, I see. You know, so actually it was uh, Barry, which was the last year. But uh, there was a, a, a point at which, for whatever reason, Bill Hader is in the uh, Bill Hader is cool guy, man. He's, I wanted to do it because of Bill Hader. But he's a, he's a good director. And he, but he knows what he wants, but, which is, see, that's the other thing uh, about directors. Oh, yeah, he's a good director. Well, what do you mean? He knows what he wants. That, that's kind of the prime. I'd never, until I saw what Bill Hader was doing, um, he never, never gave me any direction per se, but Woody Allen doesn't either. So, you, you know, until somebody said, oh, I, I, until some actors said to a, an interviewer, oh, that's what Woody's doing. Because I've heard a lot of actors complain about how Woody Allen, if he doesn't direct, I don't know if I'm doing it right or not. No, no, if he's doing it right, he doesn't say anything, you know. Just do it wrong, don't say something. Bill was the same thing, but he knew what he wanted in that the shot wasn't right. So, or, or maybe he was seeing if I would do it different a lot of times and he would be able to pick one, whatever. He just kept doing it a lot in different angles. In other words, he knew he was going for something and he, when he saw it, he got it, but he was looking. So that's kind of cool. But because of that, I had to do it a lot of times. So I had a chance to really, on a movie set, because they're always they're dealing with time and, you know, we got to move on and, you know, expenses and no, but he just got what he, he was looking for something and he finally got it. So I had to do it a lot of times, more times than I've ever had to do it before. A serious role, but then an important role. Yeah. I got to do it until I got into the character. And that's when I saw, oh, there's a whole other level here if you concentrate enough and get into it, it has nothing to do with acting or pretending. It's, you know, it's almost like just absorbing, you know, just, <laughs> I was just saying it so much. It's like they influence me, you know, in some way. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'd never thought about acting in that way, you know, cause I'm a, I'm an anti learner per se, quote around the learner. Uh, because my father and my upbringing, I, I reject anybody trying to teach me something. The, the, the old school verbatim, it's this way. Um, it just, but I may see it your way if you allow me to walk towards it, you know, don't just shove it in my face. <laughs> you just leave me alone. You know, I mean, I, I'm drawn towards logic and truth. I mean, if I just... You know, no, let it be. If I just somehow, I go, oh, because like even when I'm now, when I'm shooting my own stuff, but as my my buddy is directing me, you know, he'll say something as as we're over coffee. He'll say, you know, oh, we should do it this way, and I'm going, oh man, no, man. The next day after I slept about, you know, I think, well, oh wait a minute, maybe Roy was saying. Oh, yeah. So, in other words, I guess, I don't know, while I slept, all the negative stuff that, that I brought to it or that didn't work, and I was right, it fell away. But what he was saying, there was something in the shot that he was saying that, oh, wait, but it, yeah. So I saw the nugget if he wasn't in my face about it. So I, I think that's how I learned. I, I learned how I learn and how I automatically reject 
stuff because you, you just, it's too much information, man. Back off. You know, the thing about back off now, I understand what that's all about. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, right. No, I, I would like to see your point. It's just, let me digest, you know, cause you didn't get there in two seconds. You got there through, you know, a lot of teaching from your religion and your mom and dad and, you know, your school and stuff. So you're, <laughs> so said that. So let me just, you know, same with acting, only it's kind of instantaneous. You know, it was just a couple of hours that I learned how to act or what, what acting was all about. He let me, you know, build. And also I respected the, what, what he was doing and the script. And there's good scripts. So I, I knew that. So even if I didn't understand, I, I, there was a trust thing. As I don't know what he's doing, but, you know, fine. If he was... <laughs> Uh, I don't know why he's moving it over there or there. On, on the other hand, it was really interesting, just as a sidebar, which has nothing to do with me, but the crew. It was, it's wonderful. When when everybody is seeing the same thing. And there was one point at which, uh, at the end of my scene, uh, I won't say why, but the chair is tipped over. You don't see me, you just see my my legs. I've, I've fallen backwards. Uh, but... Um, there's a um, what, what's happened is the gun has gone off, and I saw that Bill and he had a, was a guy with him too. They were discussing the shot that if you shoot, you know, past my uh, past the bottom of the seat of the chair, you know, just that way, so you don't even see the body. You just see. You know, he said, "Well, the gun has gone off. There should be smoke." And then they go, "Okay, so you know, this guy would." smoke, one of those beeswax things. So they just, they said, okay, but smoke goes, blows away and they wanted it in the shot going away. So there's a question of timing, blow the smoke, roll the camera or keep the camera rolling, blow, blow the smoke, uh, blow the smoke and we'll just cut that part of it. Whatever. Just on that one shot of just this quick cut of the bottom of the chair and a wisp of smoke from a gun going off they must have spent just between the smoke and the camera and the lights and the, the angle and the whatever. And everybody, it wasn't like they were wasting time because everybody was into it. And I was seeing that, oh, I see if the smoke, mo- if the smoke and the blob and the, and the, and the sound effects that we'll put up, all have, yeah, it would be funnier if you could get the smoke to go that way. And that's what they were all trying to do. So just, on, and I was thinking, holy cow, and nobody's going, hey man, we got a clock running. Now, I, I, that just blew my mind, that one, that one shot, the care. Because um, it was just like whatever he was trying to do by making me do it a lot of times. I mean, there was a control there and everybody was there to make it, the show, as good as possible. And you, you got to, you know, got to respect something in a business that's like two words, you know, show business. That, that was like far out. So I, I, I totally, uh, I said, boy, too bad if what happened. I'd like to be in this. But no, <laughs> I was like doing it. What about a little hand? What about a little hand? 
talking about the finks you know mike you were talking before as far as what are these old timers doing in this movie this doesn't make a lot of sense here you brought up wonton tom the dog that saved hollywood and i think that this movie almost fits well into that generation gap that i was talking about earlier where studios were desperately trying to get the young people and appeal to the old people so they were doing a bunch of weird shit and this movie it fits up there for me with things like Skidoo or Sextet or Myra Breckenridge or The Cube or Bunny O'Hare. Just these like offbeat, we're going to take older actors and put them into kind of a contemporary setting. You know, you get uh, <laughs> fucking uh, Jackie Gleason dropping acid. <laughs> Carol Channing doing striptease. Yeah. Exactly. Carol Channing hanging out with all these these uh, hipsters and stuff and you know, wants to let her hair down and become wild and all that, or just all the young people that are in sextet and then mixed with just these octogenarians, and it's like, what is going on? It's just such a strange, almost like subgenre of films. Yeah, uh, Martin started that, I think, though, because they were doing hip edgy comedy which was supposedly edgy i've watched a few episodes lately and it's not and then they'd suddenly get in john wayne and references to ruby begonia and all sorts of other things which uh which dated back to the 1940s it's, it's a weird combination that continued with this movie you're forgetting a big one mike candy that has um walter Matthau as like a marine drill sergeant that has richard burton dry humping a life-size doll you know it's it that's it's probably worse than skidoo because it's more up its own ass than skidoo is oh but there was a lot it's i think pretty much every like big studio comedy like prior to maybe like 72 i think prior to like maybe michael ritchie's first film was kind of along the lines of skidoo and candy where it was just just studios desperately trying to appeal to kids but only hiring men who are like 45 to write the scripts uh, it was. I, I, I think that late sixties is just filled with things like that. Candy was Terry Southern, right? And I thought he was supposed to be hip. Had he already passed his hipness by that point? Oh well, it was a novel first, wasn't it? So adapting the novel was the, where they fell over. I think. Ah, okay. Well, was he involved in the script? Was it Buck Henry? Was Terry Southern involved in the script, or was it Terry Southern and Buck Henry, or like Buck Henry should have known better? Hey, do you guys want your mind blown a bit? Um, the Finks has the same DP, director of photography, as the Night Stalker. Oh, nice. I figured, yeah, I figured it was like something. Because the, the DP's not bad. There's some nice shots in that. There's some yeah. nice shots in the Finks, yeah. It's an interesting film. I can't say that the Finks is bad in any way. I really enjoyed a lot of it, and it is just such a a, a fascinating time capsule of look at what was happening at this point. And you're right, it's like kind of in that almost post-monkeys thing, and then you look at something like Head, and then you compare it with something like The Finks, and it's just like, wow, like, how strange is it? The other movie that this movie reminded me of sometimes was um, Wild in the Streets, which I 
desperately love Wild in the Streets, but this whole idea of like youth culture gone wild. You know, you were talking about how the government is basically backing the Finks, and Wild in the Streets is taking the government and saying, fuck you, we're going to make our own government, and this whole like 15 or fight kind of thing. And then, you know, there's no moment of hubris as far as the Finks becoming the the greatest rock and roll band in the world and then shitting on everybody else they they do their duty and they they rescue these people but it's like what would have happened where's the sequel to the finks where i get to see you know their downfall is it richard Pryor in uh wild in the streets too yes he is he did a lot of shit in those days oh, yeah this, yeah this movie's what i call a vulgar pleasure i don't believe in guilt so it's a vulgar pleasure you just kind of run with the fact that it's a movie that a lot of people are going to hate, but you kind of like a lot. And there are so many movies that are in that category for me. Things like The Core from 2005, a science fiction movie that makes no sense, but is a lot of fun while you're watching it. I think that may be the definition. is It's fun while you're watching it. You got DJ Qualls in there. It can't be all bad. Here's my message to Warner Brothers. Release the cats and cut. Give me two full hours of the, the Finks, please. Put this on HBO Max immediately. I will watch it. I will love it. Please just give me more Finks. We know there's there's more footage. Give us more. Soundtrack album, please. Yes. On vinyl. Vinyl, CD, whatever. Just bring it out. Just bring it out. See it if you haven't. That's pretty much the message. All right. Let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at crumbs. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Mike and Terry. So, Mike, what has been keeping you busy, sir? I've been pretty busy writing. I'll be in the upcoming issue of uh, Shock Cinema, Shock Cinema number 59, it should be coming out sometime before the end of the year. Probably by the time this airs, uh, maybe the new issue 59 will be out. Look for it. I, I, I mean, uh, if you, if you love the Finks, you love shock cinema. Uh, there's plenty of great writers in there. Brett Taylor's a very funny writer. There's Anna Pachalski, uh, of course, Steve Pachalski, uh, Adam Groves, longtime guy. Please, if you haven't checked out shock cinema already, check it out. You'll love it. Also, in addition, I, I write for a, a publication called Cinema Sewer. Uh, I have a column in there called What If, and it's basically uh, what if a certain director or a, a star made a movie, issue 34, which should be coming out sometime early 2021. I take a look at what happened if Albert, uh, I don't know how you pronounce this guy's name, Albert Kane directed the canon Spider-Man. Uh, in the previous issue, I did Bogdanovich directing Exorcist and Tim Burton directing Jurassic Park. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, if you know my work and you don't like me, there's I, I'm a very small part of these magazines. You can just ignore me very easily. I just 
ask everybody, please check out these magazines. If you love Projection Booth, you'll love these magazines. That's pretty much what I've been up to, Mike. And Terry, how are things down under, sir? Well, I'm getting out of lockdown tomorrow, and I'll be able to drive anywhere around the state after 128 days of lockdown here. So I'm looking forward to that. And they killed the virus here completely, which is kind of cool. And I've been doing radio. I do radio for the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Northern Territory feed, where I talk about movies once a week. And my YouTube channel, Terry Talks Movies, which I'm um, really going to be kicking into top gear next year. I'm going to do a lot more things. I'll be able to travel more after the lockdown and uh, look look at some locations for movies and things like that and just review stuff that people might not have picked up. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. This afternoon I had a funny urge to roam An urge to take a sentimental trip back home To walk the streets and see the folks I used to know A sentimental journey just to say hello Hello, hello, well hello Hey Jim, hey Freddie, hey Mac I waved and shouted hello fellas But no one said hello Jack I only said hello, did I say something wrong? Did they forget me, have I been away too long? I thought perhaps they didn't hear my sweet voice chime I smiled and cleared my throat and tried it one more time Hello, hello, well, hello, fellas. Hey, Jim, hey, Freddie, hey, Mac. I waved and shouted, hello, fellas. But no one said hello, Jack.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.